So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out the Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of... Classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh. Stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much-needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Welcome to Conspirituality. I'm Derek Barris. And I'm Julian Walker. Matthew Remsky will not be with us uh, today. He's taking care of a sick relative right now. But Matthew does chime in at the very end for this week's closer, which is a beautiful homage to the frontline healthcare workers. So stay around after my interview with Jonathan Berman. You will hear Matthew reflect on his current situation and on the situation of what healthcare workers are enduring right now. So going on beyond that, you can find us at 
Facebook and Instagram at Conspirituality Pod on YouTube, as well as on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash conspirituality, where we offer patrons bonus content every weekend, as well as a Monday bonus episode. We did release this week's Monday's bonus episode to the wild, as Matthew calls it. We just felt during the holiday season, it was an appropriate move because I think it's a very important episode and I highly recommend listening. Yeah, he also really brought it in terms of uh, the content, right? It's called Solstice Light in the Man Cave and it's it's a perfect one to to get out there into the world right now. And and considering this episode is sort of a continuation of bro science, I think he really frames that term in a way that will help you understand what we're going for with that term as well as how we're investigating some of the statements by these bro scientists. On that note, this is episode 31, Bro Science anti-vaxxers. As two coronavirus vaccines roll out, we're being flooded with more disinformation than ever. Wellness gurus are cashing in on homemade natural remedies by spreading unjustified fears about these vaccines and vaccines in general. This week, we look at Christiane Northrup's line in the sand Mickey Willis revealing that he recently helped out the kids of Covington High and Kyle Rittenhouse, J.P. Sears getting retweeted by Donald Trump, and the QAnon breeding ground that is MMA. During the jab, I'll be looking at the newly emerged COVID mutation and investigate whether it nullifies the vaccines. For the main discussion, Derek and I will sift through the piles of vaccine and health propaganda spread prodigiously by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Zach Bush on a recent Instagram Live. Derek interviews Jonathan Berman, author of Anti-Vaxxers, How to Challenge a Misinformed Movement, about trying to build a bridge. Finally, Matthew reports from a family hospice experience on the generosity, discipline, and grace of frontline healthcare workers. This is the Conspirituality Ticker, a weekly bullet point rundown on the ongoing pandemic of messianic influencers who spread medical misinformation and sell disaster spirituality. As is always the case with bold metaphysical prophecies, December 21 came and went, but the winter solstice does not appear to have ushered in a great awakening of the sort that our new age red-pilled influencers have been predicting. I do want to talk though, Derek, about one sign of the apocalypse that did show up. Erstwhile musical legends Eric Clapton and Van Morrison collaborated on an anti-lockdown track called Stand and Deliver that was released a few days ago. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> We've reached peak apocalypse. <laughs> it really does sound, you got to check out this song. I know you haven't heard it yet. It does sound like they watched a conspiritualist online conference to source the lyrics. They say things like, do you want to be a free man or a slave? Do you want to wear those chains till you're lying in the grave? And this is not only like, you know, so politically incorrect in the worst kind of way, but just banal. Uh, they have a little verse here that says Magna Carta, Bill of Rights, the Constitution, what's it worth? 
right? That's like they're listening to Sasha Stone and Christiane Northrup and co. You know they're going to grind us down until it really hurts. Is this a sovereign nation or just a police state? You better look out, people, before it gets too late. Oh. <laughs> As I mentioned before we started recording, my namesake comes from Derek and the Dominoes. So it's particularly troubling that, oh. I mean, not, not, not that I'm a huge Clapton fan recently, but yeah. still, uh, Van Morrison, I can do without, but. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're both musical heroes to me, especially as a guitar player. Eric Clapton had a huge influence on me. And, you know, with regard to Derek and the Dominoes, we're a long way from Layla with this stuff. The, the real kicker, the real kicker is the chorus that says, stand and deliver. They put the fear on you. Stand and deliver. Not a word of it was true. And, you know, they're using this stand and deliver is a, a, a some Americans are not as familiar with it, but it's a term that comes from sort of the old English uh, uh archetype of the highway robberman who would who would stand out on the road who would jump out in front of the stagecoach and say stand and deliver and point his you know his his old-timey musket at you and then they they reference at the very end of the song that a famous they, they say dick turpin wore a mask too and they're referencing a famous highway robber so wearing a mask is part of being on the side of the robbers who are stealing everything from the from the good people right now in just that lyric, the opening lyric you talked about, it reminds me of the the how there's such a lack of nuance in all of these conversations right now. I sent out my interview with Jonathan Berman. I had written it up for Big Think, and I sent it out to my newsletter. And I know any time that I send anything to do with vaccinations on my newsletter, I'm going to get a number of replies, and I did. But one which I engaged in, which I usually don't, but sometimes I do. And I engaged in, because it was so absurd, uh, the following, the follow-up email was letting me know that she has blocked me. Uh, She was complaining that she couldn't see the giant unsubscribe button and she was in the (laughs) house she got on. And I've never added anyone to my newsletter, like personally, like they all, everyone signs up. So besides that, her last thing was, um, wear a mask now forever. And I'm just like, why, why this, this complete lack of understanding about the situation we're in? It's, it's chronic. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it feeds into this observation I've made before, which is just the reaction as if we are, uh, we are school children who've been sort of unfairly grounded and that's what it comes down to, as opposed to seeing that everyone is participating in an imperfect set of measures that suck to try and deal with a a situation that we're just all in together. It's just awful. But let's get back to the failed prophecy. So Trump lost. The courts threw out his baseless claims of election fraud. The science fiction, horror, fantasy, reptilian, pedophile vampires have not been brought to any kind of reckoning. The pandemic has not been exposed as a hoax or a psyop, but the very real death count has continued to multiply. Now we have a vaccine and it seems highly effective and safe so far. So this is all stuff we're familiar with. I made a couple long social posts about this and wondered out loud if any of the people we cover might be ready to walk some things back, to admit they were wrong, to have the spiritual integrity, the moral courage, the human decency to apologize to their hundreds of thousands of followers for having been duped and having led them into a very dark fever dream that did not turn out to have any basis in reality. We're still waiting. 
But my invitation is a sincere one, the small G, small A, great awakening back into doing the unglamorous work of rebuilding relationships, cleaning up your mess, making amends, and finding community in ordinary human vulnerability is still possible. And if you're one of the red-pilled, not everyone will welcome you back with open arms because some damage has been done, but many of your colleagues, friends, and family members, and some of the students, readers, and followers you lost are still here. They will probably forgive you if you own up to it honestly. In light of all of this and the solstice just having happened, I was very curious to see how our next up on the ticker, Dr. Christiane Northrup, would handle this week. So Christian Northrup has made frequent references to December 21st as the moment we come out of the chrysalis and that all of the prophecies, all of the Q-influenced channeled information that she's constantly referencing, all of the spiritual and political fantasies, including the election result being overturned, would come true as we arrived on December 21st in the fifth dimensional transformation as light beings. Still waiting. (laughs) Looking at her social media feeds, on the 19th, she posted a promo image for a live stream featuring her and someone called Oracle Girl on the 22nd, titled Planetary Purification, and here's that word again, Ending Slave Contracts. I should say that listeners can look up Oracle Girl just to see whom Northrup is sharing her sizable megaphone with and talking about as a spiritual authority on this unseen reality. But then here on the 21st is Dr. Northrup on the big day and she and all of her followers have been waiting for it. So let's hear how she approaches that moment. Here we are. Can you believe it? December 21st. When we're out of the cocoon, our wings are dry. We're going to fly into the age of Aquarius. That is freedom. We're going to take a stand. If there are any doctors out there, Darlings, take a stand. If just a small percent of you of you had the courage to stand up and say what you know to be true, like a nurse friend of mine who gave a child a flu shot, went home, she felt terrible about it. She said, this isn't informed consent. She went home, she threw up, and she said, I can't do this anymore. And she told them, I can't do this anymore. I won't do this anymore. And her supervisor said, well, then you can clean out your desk. And she went back the next day for her review and nothing happened. Why? Because very often when you put a line in the sand, providence moved in, moves in and you don't have to do, but you have to be ready to do it. Mm. So the, 200, what are we at, 60, 70,000 people? What were their line in the sand that have died so far in America? Yeah, when you draw that line in the sand and you take a stand, uh, Providence moves in to support you. But here she is on December 21st. And honestly, I don't know what your impression is, Derek, but to me, she sounds exhausted. She sounds defeated. She sounds like she's going through the motions. Here we are. Can you believe it? It's December 21st. We're entering the age of Aquarius. Like, I feel like she, even she has sort of lost some kind of enthusiasm for, for her narrative, right? It also reminded me on, on, again, referencing Matthew's episode when he took the clip of Tommy John's, a chiropractor mm-hmm. I guess in the San Diego area, and just talking about this, this constant 
bravado and egotism that exists with these declarations as if we've just hit this moment that mm-hmm. all of societies have been waiting for. And this is the final battle. Like that apocalyptic mindset has perpetuated throughout time because people have a limited time. But since we perpetuate ourselves through evolution, we, we just, it kind of seems encoded in our DNA that this, um, which of course vaccines affect our DNA, uh, <laughs> constantly perpetuates itself. And when I, yeah, and that, that at the very least, at least Tommy John's has some, has some energy. That was a very low energy clip that you chose, Julian. Well, you know, that's what she put out on the day. She goes on to speculate in that um, in that IGTV video uh, to her, what is it, 500,000, 400 and some thousand followers, that genetically modified organisms that are supposedly in the vaccine will start to modify your DNA such that, and this is the new spin, such that you literally become the patented property of the evil scientists, right? This is the new thing. If they can get enough of their genetically modified DNA into you, then they'll own you. I don't understand what the end game is for these these influencers. Like obviously with some of them, it's supplements. We've gone over that. Uh, book sales, of mm-hmm, course, and just mm-hmm. being out in the public. But but how far do you have to follow these conspiracy theories before like you you just realize the absurdity? I mean, you might have nailed it right here with her saying she doesn't even seem invested in this anymore. And this is one, I don't know, you you pay attention to her more than I do uh, for, for this podcast. Um, but you know, is is this something that you've been seeing over and over? Like, does she seem to be losing that enthusiasm as this drags on? Well, you know, this will be purely speculative, but I, I feel like she's, my sense is that she might be quite alone, quite isolated. And more and more, the, the trend seems to be that these videos she makes for IGTV, she has a little bit of something she says in the beginning, but then she immediately starts referencing whatever her channel of the week is that she's listening to. So right now it's Oracle Girl. And she'll, she'll reference having listened for hours to one of these channels. And this is the amazing thing she learned from listening to the channel. It'll be some like very, very out there, new agey, you know, conspiritualist kind of idea. And... Yeah, it just it just seems like this is this is the new way of of having something to talk about in these addresses to her public. So next up in the ticker, we have JP Sears. Now, even if some influencers like Dr. Northrop seem to be having an anticlimactic holiday season, new father and perennial grifter J.P. Sears seems to have had his climactic moment in the wintry sun. The Mac Daddy trickster lightworker savior, known to the world as Donald J. Trump, retweeted a video of his, of uh, Sears's, that looks almost about as panderingly teed up for the possibility of getting retweeted by Trump as one could imagine. It features Sears direct to camera explaining in an unintended, excuse me, explaining in an intended parody of totalitarian state media that communist guideline number five, kind of random, instructs us to ignore any information published by enemies of the people before the censors have erased it or the fact checkers have had a chance to tell you not to believe it because not to believe leave your own eyes, excuse me, because you're crazy. You're right in the sense that 
that video is unlike anything he has ever done. The red floodlights behind mm-hmm. him, the way it's shot, everything about it. And I, I always try to find a balance, like either when I'm listening to or Matthew speaking or my own thought patterns of not getting sucked in by my own thoughts and trying not to perpetuate any sort of propaganda and mm. understanding that people have different intentions, but seeing that, just isolating that and seeing that, knowing it's not like anything else. When I watched it, I could not help but think that was made to try to get a Trump retweet or at least get into the GOP in some capacity. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and even more to your point, what he does in the video then is he uses a fact-checked and debunked video that was promoted by Trump and his associates, including one Rudolph Giuliani, uh, purporting to show suitcases filled with ballots being counted by Georgia poll workers after observers have mysteriously been asked to leave the room. So, of course, this is security camera footage from inside the room that somehow they've isolated a little segment of it and they're like, ah, there you see, that looks really suspicious. So I guess... Congratulations, JP, both on winning the approval of your new father figure and on perpetuating dangerous lies that threaten the stability of our democracy and foment civil war. I guess his following does keep growing. It's it's actually, I mean, I'm looking on Parler right now, and when that was retweeted, his commentary was a cheeky little retweet of my socialist media video by President Trump with the prayer hands, and 260,000 people have have viewed it that um, Parler post already. And then just scrolling down, though, or up, I noticed that his last two posts are called A Communist Christmas uh-huh. and... and and then J.P. Sears hopes you have a very merry communist Christmas. Um, and like, what what is this? Like, do these people have any poli sci? I was going to uh, say background whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. It, we're going to talk about Mickey Willis a little bit later, and you have a great segment on him. And it's it, it it makes me think of him too. That that these these superficial influencers who have sort of imagined themselves as being on the left, you know, in their, in their sort of new age uh, guys, they, they, it seems like they have no, no basis for any kind of political context. And they're, they're therefore they're ripe for these bizarre right wing tropes that anything that's not like ultra right wing is a step towards communism. Like where are the communists in this country? <laughs> you think the current democratic mainstream are communists? In another case of celebrity influencing politics, former UFC champion Tito Ortiz is now a councilman in Huntington Beach, despite having zero legislative experience. Obviously, that is not uh, something that stops people from entering (laughs) politics. Uh, He's been out leading anti-lockdown, anti-mask rallies. He even, I was just watching before this, a video of him at the council meeting being the only person refusing to wear a mask. Uh, He's saying it's all a fraud and he believes a globalist conspiracy is underway to diminish American freedoms. Um, Ortiz owns a gym called Punishment Training Center and he believes in QAnon. Um, so he isn't the only MMA fighter who's gone down the Q rabbit hole. On Monday's bonus episode, again, uh, Matthew discusses Tim Kennedy and his conversation with J.P. Sears. So it's a fitting segue from your your last bit. 
Um, and veteran MMA journalist Luke Thomas offers this insight into why he believes the conspiracy theories seem to be taking hold of the MMA community. Uh, this is a quote. It was the sport of outsiders who either rejected or were rejected by more mainstream interests and activities. Conspiracy theory or thinking that was conspiracy adjacent has always been a part of the community. It has hit overdrive with QAnon, but the groundwork in terms of a populace ready to believe these sorts of things has always been there. And the author of uh, of the piece on that topic is in The Guardian, which is linked in the show notes, n- show notes. He also speculates that UFC President Dana White's vocal support for Donald Trump and the fact that MMA fighters' social media handles are not regulated in the manner that other athletes in different sports could be playing a role in this. So they're not looked over in any capacity like being in the uh, NBA or Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, though, MMA is quite mainstream these days, just like QAnon. So I I wonder (laughs) how long these fringe communities can hold on to their outsider status as a foundational reason for their support of other fringe ideas. It's, it's like the guy with 50 million followers calling out mainstream media organizations that yeah. have 5 million followers <laughs> and pretending like he's not actually the mainstream at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think MMA always has been this renegade territory, but it, it, it has gone quite mainstream. Um, I think, you know, given that Joe Rogan has the biggest podcast in the world and, you know, he's he's a, a mainstay of the MMA landscape and has been since the beginning of the UFC. It's a it's a very, you know, he, he's more influential than the quote unquote mainstream media sources that often get criticized by a lot of these folks. And interestingly, and to be fair to him, he's evolved a lot over time. But Joe Rogan in the beginning was a big time conspiracy theorist and a, and a, and a booster of Alex Jones. And, you know, he's he has a complicated relationship with Jones. But but uh, Joe Rogan's jujitsu coach and and good friend Eddie Bravo, who's on the podcast all the time, is about as deep in the conspiracy rabbit hole as you can get. One thing I want to point out uh, with, you know, the three of us all have different backgrounds and yeah. different different, you know, uh, educations. And Matthew made a comment about MMA uh, that I just wanted to clarify something on um, because MMA in its origins was ideally going to be something that was about camaraderie and just understanding what the best martial art is. Yeah. It has, as anything happens when you get that much testosterone and put injected in, uh, you know, it, it has gone in weird directions, but it, it, it was really sort of like an Olympics in the beginning, the, the intention of it to just be like, okay, we have all of these fighting systems. Let's, let's see, you know, they, we have the champions of each one of them. Mm-hmm. Let's see what, when they fight each other, what that looks like. And, mm-hmm. and can we start to, you know, engage and start to create new forms out of that? So I, I do think in the, origin myth of MMA. I don't think the intentions were bad, but I think it's gone off the rails in a few different well, ways. Well, yeah. And also to, for anyone who's, who's not that familiar, it's not, it's, it's also not just, let's see what happens when they fight each other. It's let's see what happens when they, when they have a, a contest with specific rules, you know, in, in a specific, in a specific structure and, and try to try to ascertain who the best is. It's, it's, it's super testosterone driven. 
Um, but I, th- I think as I, I think all martial arts do have an underlying kind of quote unquote spiritual component or integrity, self-development, uh, uh, keeping the peace by having sort of control over your own abilities and knowing that you can protect yourself when needed. But I think, as, as you said, when it's when it's heavily flooded with testosterone, but also when it becomes something that is uh doing a ton of marketing, then you start to get into this, this sphere of spectacle and of what, what generates intense interest and what generates intense interest for people who are really into that is conflict and trash talk and, uh, violence. What's amazing though, is one thing that I learned from studying a few martial arts, whether it was Taekwondo or Capoeira or, uh, Jeet Kune Do, which are the three that I spent time with. Whenever you entered and left the space, you bowed. Yeah. So there was always a recognition that you're a student and that you are honoring the tradition and the teachers. And I always wished in some capacity that could just be introduced to society at large. Yeah. Uh, and especially in, in the digital space where there was, where, you know, even we had done the, um, this conversation, you and I, Julian, with uh, Rick Archer and his group on Sunday, where there was some conflict uh, w- with some of the, the members. And I know I personally treated it like a debate and I wasn't triggered by it. It's healthy to debate, but the, some of the other members were sort of triggered by it because they they just wanted the space to be like everyone kind of get along and debate has a space everywhere but i think if the it's because that the rules aren't introduced early that there can be conflict and yet everyone can still be respectful that doesn't exist broadly enough and i think the martial arts have always done a great job of instilling that in people obviously it doesn't always work as we see but it just as an underlying foundational philosophy there's a, there's a lot to be learned there yeah as as an immigrant to this country i definitely found myself surprised by the lack of tolerance for adult disagreement debate making a case you know having having the kind of back and forth that i grew up with in 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 a society that i where i think it was we just maybe had no choice because it was there was so much conflict in the society but yeah i think some of it some of it too is an anti-intellectualism that is much more american than perhaps in other english uh, former english colonies uh where yeah there's just there's a there's a shying away from conflict and from sort of getting deeply into discussion and it would be great if the if there were some cultural rules of engagement around hey we're going to do this but you know we we still res- we still respect one another we may just we may not respect certain ideas Finally, on the ticker this week, Mickey Willis. He recently spoke at the Red Pill Expo, and I want to thank Antonio Valadares for writing an article about this and pointing me to where I could find the video online. I've linked to it in the show notes, so you could watch the entire video for context if you'd like. Uh, So there are two reasons I'm bringing this up this week. First off, in January, we're going to do an episode on the hero's journey and how red-pilled and right-wing figures are using the mythology of the hero's journey in their own self-styled narratives, which Willis does uh, very effectively in this uh, talk that he gives. It's about 45 minutes long. 
And he also discloses more of his political affiliations. I know that's something that people are always thinking about his transformation from being more liberal minded and some of his previous work up until what has happened with Plandemic and beyond. He opens up his set with a bit of a joke, which I'll begin with here. So my kids said, can I have my, my kids to stand up? Is I and Zuri, where are you? These beautiful little men right there. Six and nine years old, and as I got out of the shower at our hotel, they came to me and they said, Daddy, we think you need to be funny today. And I said, well, what, what, what do you mean? I don't, I'm not a comedian. And they said, you should tell a joke. And I said, well, why do I need to tell a joke? They said, because people like comedy, Dad. And they need it, they need it right now. And so I said, all right. And I had to, on the way over here, I was thinking of a joke. And I thought of a joke, a COVID-19 joke. But then I realized the reality is, is that 99.9% .9 of you just won't get it. Okay, I got thumbs up. Thumbs up seems to be what Willis is going for. Matthew pointed out after we reported on the election evening party in Austin uh, and him reading his poetry at the end that validation seems very important to Willis. So to start in a very conservative, conservative Trump-leaning red-pilled expo joking about something that estimates have it over a half a million dead Americans in about three months from seems to be in great taste. But the entire speech is about his journey from left-wing activism to being a Republican activist. Uh, of course, like with religions, uh, there's a rupture in the Republican Party right now. So identifying what sort of conservative he's aspiring to at this moment is difficult. But perhaps with some of the forthcoming samples of audio I'm going to play, you can discern that for yourself. And I would like to say right now to all the Republicans in the room, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think we, a lot of us owe a great deal of, of, of uh, real reverence to the, the, the true heart of the Republicans who have been holding the ground and the libertarians and the people that have been holding the ground for freedom and for family and for God and for love all this time while we've all been over here very distracted by other things. So thank you for holding that. Distracted? Distracted by what? Well, of course, he's going to divulge that information. Again, the whole context is framed by his hero's journey from that left-wing activist, which he gets into a little bit more right here. So I went on to become a, an activist, a left-leaning, far-left, I would even say, activist. And again, I was the hero of the left. Okay, so there it is. There's the hero myth. He's coming up. He's going to be a hero here. And now he's pivoting to be a hero somewhere else. Now, I've leaned left for a long time. And while I briefly worked as a creative director for a festival in 2011 that Mickey spoke at, I... I had some relationship with him then. I, I would hardly call him a hero of the left. Now, when he says far left, he's, he's actually kind of right in the sense that he 
his film company, Elevate, his former company, made a splash because of some supposed work they did with The Secret. And I, I do put that in air quotes for some reasons because I've had conversations with someone who worked directly on The Secret and they don't remember Mickey from that time. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with it. And of course, The Secret being about as far into the wellness rabbit hole as you can find. But so to a certain small yoga and wellness community in Los Angeles and Ojai, where I used to live, uh, I guess you could present yourself as a hero of the left. But honestly, it's a bit of a stretch considering that most liberals and most people didn't know of his name before Plandemic. But you see, that narrative fits into his hero's mythos. So he has to make it seem like he was a towering figure to make his transition into being a right-wing activist more plausible. From there, he goes on a long monologue about 9-11 and the idea that his brother, who tragically died of AIDS, was killed by Anthony Fauci. And those are his words. You can, again, watch the video. He also claims his mother, who tragically died of cancer around the same time as his brother, was killed by bad medicine. And I'm not going to debate the validity of any of this, but I'll just note that he repeats this constantly as his motivation behind making Plandemic. So it's become a piece of his narrative arc. And from there, he goes on to discuss his time on the campaign trail with Bernie Sanders, which led to his waking up. But I was really supporting Bernie because I was anti-Hillary. That's the truth. I knew enough. I knew enough to know that as much as I would love to see a woman in the White House, she's not the one. So again, think of the crowd you're speaking in front of. Four years later, Hillary jokes are still working with them. But here's where it gets even more interesting and I would say revealing. Listening to him really carefully and I thought, has he ever said anything good about America? He hasn't, has he? That's a problem. Hmm. How's he going to lead this country if he hates it? That's interesting. Oh, really? Bernie hates America? And at a time when we have three people in this country owning more wealth than the bottom half of America, while 500,000 people are sleeping out on the streets today, we think it is time for change, real change. And by that, I mean that health care, in my view, is a human right. I believe that education is the future for this country. And that is why I believe that we must make public colleges and universities tuition free and eliminate student debt. Wow. Universal health care and eliminating student debt. That's some serious hatred for Americans there, especially given our problems with capitalism because it's working so well. Now, Post-Bernie, he has another revelation while he says he works with some indigenous communities. Um, so he goes through a list of the Native Americans he has worked with. But then something odd happened on the way to the Dakota pipeline. I'm sure you remember this infamous pipeline, which was planned to run through or near a number of Native American reservations. And the protests were about those tribes, but it was really about the continued exploitation of indigenous communities. Listen to how Mickey spins it to make it feel like it's an attack on white people. I learned that 18 million people downstream drink the same water and they all cared about this pipeline. 
And this narrative that had been created to demonize the white people was media's doing. And that I was once again unwittingly serving that agenda. Okay, so you have the hero being exploited by insidious forces, check. And you have the hero waking up to go to battle those forces, which is his next pivot here. Where he goes next is Covington High School. And let's be clear, there was a problem with the knee-jerk reaction by liberals on this incident. But let's also recall the context, which Mickey does not disclose. And that is a group of white high school kids wearing MAGA hats uh, that were leaving an anti-abortion rally in D.C. when they walked by a group of black nationalists. And so a Native American activist, Nathan Phillips, who was there for another rally that day, he intervened to pray as he saw the tensions rising between the groups. So... What Mickey's doing is say, let's forget this group of privileged white boys bust in from a private Catholic school in Kentucky to raise their voices in saying women should not have the right to do what they want with their bodies. And instead, let's focus on the oppression of white people in the context of, yet again, Native Americans. This is who Mickey has aligned himself with. And I made the video that won the lawsuit against CNN and Washington Post. Thank you. Thank you. And I was no longer a darling of the left. Okay, so first off, two points of clarification. There wasn't one lawsuit against Washington Post and CNN. There were two lawsuits, and they weren't one. They were settled. And I, I know in, in the arc of the picture, you can say that uh, Sandman won because he probably got some money that wasn't disclosed. So that's fine. But it doesn't fit so neatly into the narrative arc of the hero if he says, I made the video in two lawsuits that helped a kid settle out of court. So, so, but, but that's a technique he uses often and it's a necessary technique for him. Finally, he reveals some information for the first time ever at the Red Pill Expo. There's a video online right now of Kyle Rittenhouse. We made that. Now, this is the first group that I've admitted that to, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of flack for the people that are online watching the live stream that will see this later, because I usually keep this stuff privately, but there's no time to be silent anymore. And if there's an innocent, if there's an innocent citizen in this country, and I don't care what gender, what color, none of that motivates. It's about truth and truth only. And I will not see a 17-year-old kid who may have made his own mistakes, perhaps by by unlawfully carrying a gun into a situation for his own protection, but I've now seen every video of that young man. And he's a very stand-up citizen who went there to help. He went there to help the protesters. And he was targeted, just like the Covington kids. Wow, there is so much to unpack there. First off, Rittenhouse did not go to help the protesters he had supported Blue Lives Matter on social media before. He was there against the Black Lives Matter protesters. And he may perhaps have committed a crime when he crossed state lines as a 17-year-old boy with an assault rifle. 
And when he says he doesn't care what color or race or gender, it seems like he's very selective in the people he's helping out these days. Rittenhouse killed Anthony Huber that evening and he injured another man. And you know what? Rittenhouse was being chased by protesters before he tripped and fell. And then a man kicked him. Kyle fired twice at him and he missed both times. And by this point, we can only imagine the disorientation and adrenaline that led him to kill one person and injure another. He's probably really out of his mind at that point. But what Mickey leaves out is that a teenager drove to another state with an assault weapon because he ordained himself a citizen police officer. He was aspiring to be that. And Mickey constantly blames the mainstream media for not telling the whole story. But as his entire speech at the Red Pill Expo shows, he's extremely selective in his own narratives as well. And it just so happens that his narratives that he chooses to tell makes him the hero of every story. Okay, so my my first observation is that Willis is great at working the crowd, but his political stance is it's empty of content. And what I mean by that is he gets to the standard confusion about patriotism being equated with not criticizing policies that are hurting most Americans. But then he also makes the banal all lives matter style observation about white people also caring about their drinking water, not just the natives. To me, this is more of the same superficial environmental posturing he did in the past. It's the same type of superficial spiritual posturing he was involved with uh, when he was when he was moving in agape circles. I don't. I did know him then, but I didn't know him well enough. But everything about the talk, and I watched the entire thing against my better judgment, <laughs> and it's just I, you know. Again, we try not to necessarily play armchair psychologists here. Yeah, but it's you watch these things and part of our role is observation. First off, he contradicts himself constantly, but that's sort of par for the course. Um, but the, the, I, I really can't help but feel like, and that's why I think we've kind of locked in on him and JP Sears that as their star has grown, they're just looking for entry points. Like even that opening COVID joke. Oh my God. Like, it, it like he, it was pandering to the crowd and totally. he knew he would get a laugh. And then he even was proud of himself that he got a laugh. It's kind of like the poem that Matthew referenced, um, you know, from the Austin election night party where it's just like, it's just kind of like precious. Am I accepted? Oh, I am. Okay. I can go on sort of vibe. It's even worse here, right? Because he's, he's, he's having his kids stand up in the audience and he's saying it was his kid's idea to tell the joke. And maybe it was. And his kids then are laughing at this, god-awful joke right and they're just looking up at daddy on Uh stage and being like he's people love him okay Uh and and but to me you know there was there was a lot in there and you know i tried to cover it uh you know in in pieces but the the covington and then the kyle rittenhouse reveal and then also the kyle rittenhouse reveal followed by i know i'm gonna get skewered by this but It, there's this sense that he, you know, I was talking to a friend behind on uh, text who's also friends and still friends with Mickey. And it's how I know Mickey. And he's, he's having a hard time because he cares about this guy and they still are in contact, but he's also seeing what's happening. Yeah. And 
he asked me, what do you think the end game is? And, and I think there are a few things, but I said, I really believe just like one of the things is owning the libs. Mm. It's this sort of just, okay, I was this guy and now I'm reformed and now I'm going to just poke at these people that I once was. And I don't really understand how you square that personally, but that does seem to be something that comes up over and over in his discussions that I've noticed at least since the fall. Well, with any of these people, and and I think it's perhaps even more so the case with with Willis, you look at it and go, the the types of pivots that you're doing over the course of your hero's journey all really seem to be driven by how do I stay in the spotlight more than anything else. You know, I, my, my sense, I don't know him well either, but my sense is that he was quite involved with Agape. He actually did direct a film in 2009 called Spiritual Liberation that was sort of a, a, a idealizing propaganda piece about Michael Beckwith, who is a big figure in Santa Monica in terms of the New Age community. I, I cannot stand the guy. He was, he was very heavily involved with The Secret. And I know you mentioned uh, in, in, your, in what you were just saying that Willis sort of claims to have been part of the secret, but may not have been. Yeah. So when Plandemic came out, I had written an article for Big Think that got a lot of traction because it was kind of one of the first takedowns of it. Just because I, I you know, being, I think being around that circle, you can you get information quicker than bigger news sources. So I published it the day after Plandemic came out, and. Uh, one of the a person who was worked on the film closely from beginning to end uh, told me she was like I saw your thing and I I have no idea who Mickey Willis is mm. and I remember at the time that I met him in 2011 his big thing was I helped to make the secret okay and, yeah and, and you know what I I don't know and again sure. I can't this is I'm just telling you what I've experienced but. What I found out from talking to people since the time of pandemic is he does seem to have an overinflated sense of what he's accomplished. I even mentioned that when he's like, I was a hero of the oh, left. Yeah, and, I'm, yeah. and I'm like, people outside of the west side of Los Angeles didn't know you. Like, totally. You- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted to comment on that too. I mean, he says that he was a darling of the left, but I don't think so. I, I, I think, again, this is part of this this lack of any kind of poli-sci background, as you named it, right? Uh, privileged LA New Age circles are not far left. You know, these are establishment Democrats who happen to have delusional spiritual beliefs. But, you know, going deeper <laughs> well, and deeper into delusional spiritual beliefs does not it does not indicate going further and further left. In fact, those spiritual beliefs are usually, as we've covered many times on this podcast, super libertarian, super privileged, very much about like, how do I figure out how to use my spiritual power of intention to manifest a red sports car, to manifest a, a, a model with who's had a lot of Botox, right? Like it's it's. It's it's very superficial um, uh, materialist spirituality, and that's that's about as far from being actual left wing as you can be. I was I definitely felt that the yoga community was much more liberal in New York City, where I trained and grew up. And oh, I grew up in New Jersey, but my yoga practice began in New York. And not that there's any perfect place, but I, I do remember moving 
to Los Angeles and, and knowing this as the epicenter of yoga in America and yoga in the world in some capacity, I mean, in terms of the marketing of it and how it got out in the 1980s and beyond, uh, you know, you grow up with this idea of like, well, that that's the place where you'll really get into a practice mm. and coming here and just being really just kind of surprised. And there are fantastic teachers here and there are wonderful studios, but the whole mystique of it was definitely, I had my eyes open to what it really was and you, you nailed it when you, uh, the manifestation of what can I get is very much an underlying theme here. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the lack of, the lack of political depth, I think is exemplified by, you know, I was, I was following Bernie just because I didn't like Hillary. And of course that gets big applause lines as you noticed. Uh, but then I realized Bernie hates America has he ever said anything good about America? So if, if, and as you pointed out with the clip that you then shared, right, if, if he's, if he's actively talking about policies that are harming Americans and wanting to change that and talking about problems with American government, that somehow equates to hating America. That's, that's about as low on the sort of totem pole of conservative talking points as you get. The same with, the, with Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, kind of turning him into some kind of heroic, innocent figure. And, uh, and the same with the, with the Dakota Pipeline stuff, that somehow there's a, and, and he does it in this breathless way. He's, he's really good at working the crowd. He does this whole, I realize I was serving the same narrative that made white people bad. Oh my God. Like this is his, this is his sort of, you know, profound deep realization that because there are white people downstream who also care about their drinking water, the legacy of these native people just continuously being given the wrong end of the stick is somehow just a narrative of the far left. It's, it's bullshit. This is a very clip heavy episode. I know that, but I, <laughs> I think there's context for it and we're trying to bring that out, but yeah. I couldn't clip everything. But two things I want to point out yeah. is that he, he also goes on to say that Bernie supporters all hate America. And then uh, before that, talking about the Dakota pipeline, he set up the Dakota pipeline story by talking about all the work he was doing in the indigenous communities. Yeah. There's always this, like, you know, there's this thing, like he, he talks about that viral video of his son and the doll that, you know, mm. kind of was probably his biggest moment up until now. And, you know, he, he goes on to pivot and saying like, but the left thought that that meant I was a transgender advocate and I'm not, I never said that. Uh, and so always, he always has to qualify everything. And that's what I've known. Like, I, I'm not this, I'm not this, but, and then he goes on to basically <laughs> disqualify himself for what he just said. And the indigenous community one was the, the big one in this talk. Well, it's interesting too. I, I, I had forgotten about that particular moment and him playing that video, but you know, he's whichever stage he's on, he's using his, his kids as props for whatever half baked, you know, pandering he's doing. And there's something really sad to me about that. The Jab, our weekly segment on the crucial COVID vaccine and the misinformation conspiritualists love to spread about it. With our whole episode this week being very vaccine focused, I wanted to just mention one big news item, which most of you are probably aware of. It's that the COVID mutation now seems to be accounting for a high percentage of new cases in the UK as well as in South Africa. 
Now, as with sensationalist reporting about allergic reactions or side effects, it's easy to form a pretty gloomy impression of what each new development means. Don't get me wrong, this is important news and it's something that scientists are paying close attention to, but it's also to be expected. This is just what viruses do. They adapt and evolve via mutation. Thousands of smaller mutations had already been tracked so far during the pandemic. Some experts speculate that this particular strain may be more easily transmissible. But others say not so fast. The wave we're seeing right now may not reflect greater transmissibility, but rather the behavior of populations, either coming out of lockdown before we went back in or just ignoring quarantine measures altogether a couple months ago. So that part is still wait and see. Obviously, if it's much more easily transmitted, that's not a good development. But the really important thing I want to get to is that for the layperson, like myself, the immediate concern is, oh no, does this mean that the vaccines are now going to be ineffective or already obsolete? And that's not the case. A virus would need a period of years, not mere months, to mutate enough to be able to sidestep a current vaccine. Quoted on December 20th in the New York Times, evolutionary biologist and medical researcher Dr. Jesse Bloom said, no one should worry that there's going to be a single catastrophic mutation that suddenly renders all immunity, all antibodies useless. As I mentioned a little while ago, uh, you know, I, I sat through the Mickey Willis talk, and obviously, we, you know, we do try to watch entire videos and clips here for context so that we're not missing anything. And uh, Julian took it upon himself to watch the Instagram live between Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Zach Bush, uh, which I would have let him do, but considering we were going to have this discussion, he then made me do, and I don't know if I'll ever forgive him for that. <laughs> but I actually want to start off, and again, this is something we've dealt with since the inception of this podcast, which is this idea that it's, it's everything is either or, you know, we've been criticized for thinking that there's no such thing as a conspiracy theory, which is absurd. We've, mm -hmm. we've already talked about that numerous times. And I actually want to start this before we get into this talk. And we're going to play a few clips and discuss about things that I agreed from that conversation. And the biggest one is that the environment plays a much greater role in our health than we give it credit for. I, I've argued this for a long time. Medicine should incorporate more knowledge about the environment. Um, two studies that I think of are the fact that uh, there was one done in a hospital and half of the rooms faced the forest and half faced a brick wall. And they found that on average, people who were recovering from similar surgeries left the hospital a day earlier when their window faced the forest instead of a wall. Uh, another one from the 1970s, which is fascinating, is that they um, researchers looked at a building um, 
in northern Manhattan, and they studied children on the second floor and children on something like the 30th floor. And they both, they're all from the same socioeconomic class. And they found out that the children on the second floor did much worse in school because of all the street noise, whereas the children on the higher floors didn't have all that noise. And so they could concentrate better. Yeah. So you're, you're, you know, a study just came out last week that there is now more man-made stuff on earth by weight than yeah. what nature produces. So there's, these are all serious problems. Um, and, and I also agree, and Robert F. Kennedy goes on to this a lot, and as does Bush, that we don't pay enough attention to chemistry. Uh, for example, with the pandemic, I stopped using soap. I haven't wa- bathed with soap except for my hands and then, uh, as it's put, the pits and bits sometimes. But that's from James Hamblin's, Hamblin's book, Clean. Uh, soap humans survived for a long time without it. It was mostly a marketing tool because you're actually buying scent, texture, and packaging. I I remember I used to uh, work with a variety of companies and David Bronner once was talking to me about how like most companies that make soap, they don't even actually make soap. It's just all these chemicals that smell good and make you feel like you're doing something. Lather up. And soap kills bacteria that we need. And so our skin has a microbiome. Yeah. And when we're constantly scrubbing that microbiome on our skin, we're negatively impacting our immune systems. Um, I also, talking about environmental mismatches, I stopped using deodorant in the pandemic because I've lived in cities for my entire adult life. And why am I trying to smell like a pine forest? (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's like, you know, I, so those two things, the environmental role and the chemicals, I I'm fully on board with them. Uh, One final point that I thought was really important from this talk, Zach Bush says that governmental legislation is needed. And I, I don't think he spends enough time talking about that, but I'm glad he mentioned it. I I personally don't know how we expect to live in a nation of over 300 million people and function without bureaucracy. Yeah. So so I know we're sometimes criticized for being shills for an agency oh. organization. <laughs> but I, I don't, you know, I don't care. First of all, none of that's true. Our only <laughs> mean support is, you know, Patreon and we appreciate that. And it's just for our time we put in. But 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 I'm personally glad that public servants are out there doing the work that I don't have the time or patience to do. Uh, I'm going through something with DMV right now that's blowing my mind and I'm losing my patience. But you know what? We need these structures. Um, so this idea that all government is absurd, and I'm glad Zach actually recognizes that when he says these things. Well, let me, let me say two things in, just in response to that uh, before you roll the clip. Uh, one is that, yeah, I'm glad that Zach mentions that too. And, and we, we need the structure of governmental oversight in responsible ways by qualified people who know what the hell they're doing. Very, very, very much so. Uh, there is a, there is a moment that we won't, that we don't have clips on in the talk, in the discussion where Zach talks about going to, I think he's going to Congress. He's going to some kind of legislative body and he and a group of his friends, all bring their studies to try and show, I believe it's the problems with glyphosate uh, in terms of people's health and well-being. And the legislators inform him that he has not submitted the documents in the correct format, that there's a particular way they need to be presented in order to be then taken into legal consideration. And his response to that is not, 
oh, I screwed up. I didn't have my shit together. I didn't know that if I was going to interact with a government legislative body in this kind of way, I had to submit documents in, in the correct format and have the correct protocol. He says that's another example of government disempowering us. So that, that, I just, that just had me shaking my head. Uh, but, the, but the other thing I wanted to say is that, yeah, people come at us with this stuff all the time. And I think it's really important just to, to put a pin in this observation that what makes a conspiracy theory is not that it's all false. It's that it is taking a bunch of observations that are true and then distorting them, misinterpreting them, linking them to one another in ways that actually don't add up. And that's always the problem is people will come at you and say, well, what about this? It's like, well, yeah, that's that's true, of course. That is real. There is evidence for that, but that doesn't mean this other thing that they've jumped to. And that's what we see throughout this conversation. Yeah, and that's a really good point. I have something more to add about um, Bush and his government thing, but I'll, I'll wait for a clip for that because uh, it'll make more sense then. But let's let's start off listening to um, them talk about. Uh, well, let's just say they're talking about AIDS. You know, you mentioned sarcoma, and I'm reading one of Peter Duesberg's books right now. And Peter Duesberg, as you know, had a fight with Tony Fauci at the beginning of the kind of HIV um, era. And Peter Duesberg was one of the most brilliant uh, virologists and scientists that, um, of, of our generation. And his belief was that the HIV epidemic was not being caused, or the AIDS epidemic was not um, being caused by HIV. It was being caused by toxics, particularly toxics that were, um, that were being, that gay men were exposing themselves to in this kind of party lifestyle. And particularly amyl nitrate or poppers uh, were probably the uh, most um, clear culprit in the epidemic of Kaposi sarcoma, which was the first signal of the AIDS issue. And I don't know whether you have a, you know, he believes that HIV does not cause AIDS, that it's all caused by toxics. And I don't know if you adopt that kind of orthodoxy, but I know I'd love to hear your opinions on that. But also I know that's consistent with a lot of things that you talk about, that the real problem is um, uh, uh, offensive insults in the environment that are empowering viruses to, um, you know, to do damage to us that normally would be benign if we had a healthy ecosystem inside and outside. Polio wouldn't exist and uh, HIV wouldn't exist and TB and all of these other that have these kind of environmental connections. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I should have mentioned it beforehand, but just for any listeners who have not heard RFK Jr.'s talk before, he does have a condition called spasmodic dysphonia. That's not, that's still sort of a, a mysterious uh, uh, diagnosis. It's, it's probably a sort of a neurological thing that interferes with speech. But that's the, the, the clip was decent quality. His, his voice just sounds like that. He jumps right in really early on, and I want to break this down in this exchange by just flat out repeating some AIDS denialism tropes that were popular, popularized. And he references the guy by scientific pariah 
Peter Duisberg in his 1996 book called Inventing the AIDS Virus. Duisberg's claim that HIV does not cause AIDS, but that recreational drugs like poppers common in the gay community at the time of the AIDS epidemic were to blame has been debunked by evidence showing that only infection with the virus, not being gay, which, you know, this, this, this whole section sounded a little bit off, right? Not using poppers. These things are not strongly correlated with developing AIDS. The thing that is strongly correlated is being infected with the HIV virus. Right. And yeah, there's some very dangerous terrain they're, they're running on. And some of the things they say, well, let's just keep rolling. Unless you well, let me, let me say a couple more things here. Uh, Duisburg, it's important to know about this guy, especially given that, that uh, RFK is, is referencing his super outdated and debunked book. He also asserted that the epidemic in Africa had more to do with malnutrition and tainted drinking water and other infections than with HIV. And this is important in terms of some of the other stuff we're going to get into. Uh, It's all been examined very carefully since and found wanting. His claims about HIV were debated back and forth in the pages of both of the eminent journals, preeminent journals, Science and Nature, since before the book was published, uh, which was in 96. We'll include a link in the show notes here to a three-month-long investigation of his hypothesis. So it's been taken seriously. That gradually led to him no longer being published in those esteemed journals. Uh, There was a 2009 book on the human cost of AIDS conspiracy theories, which identified Duisburg as the individual who has done the most damage in terms of perpetuating AIDS denialism because of the weight of his medical credentials and his legitimate acclaim as a cancer researcher. But, you know, RFK just read this outdated and thoroughly discredited book. So why not bring it up to the 135,000 people watching this live stream and later replays? And it's just... Well, let's, let's go into a little bit of Zach now talking about um, germ theory before we get back into AIDS. So the, you know, the science of the last 20 years has exploded uh, the previous paradigm. And, and you know, the previous paradigm was one of an adaptive immune system belief, is that uh, humans are in conflict with the microbiome and the biome all the time, and we're always vulnerable to attack from viruses. And so this you know, dates back to the 1800s with, with the arguments between uh, Bechamp and Pasteur in, in France, who were arguing over germ theory versus strain theory. And what Bechamp was recognizing is he was watching twins of identical genetics be exposed to different environments and end up, end up with completely different diseases. And so his argument was it's not so much that it's like the genetic predisposition of the individual or some attacking marauder. It's what is the condition and terrain within that specific human being when you put them in a greater macro environment? So he was recognizing changes in vulnerability based on our macro environment uh, and, and resilience against disease if we were in a healthy environment. So he was the first to really put together long before we had the words genetics, microbiome, bacteria even. He had already put together that there's the, the human body was reflecting this greater ecosystem around us and vulnerabilities here within the body we're actually just symptomatic of our disconnect from a greater ecosystem around us. So brilliant, brilliant scientists. And that academic argument was supported by, you know, hundreds of academicians on both sides of the discussion for over 30 years is that, that raged. And then with the advent of chemical uh, industry towards the late 1800s and the opportunity to start killing things and the observations of, you know, being able to kill germs and things like this, Pasteur went out, went out. And so we kind of, 
fell down at, into this dogma rather than a, a debate between these two things. Now you speed up 120 years later and you find out, shoot, we, we should have kept that debate going because in fact, both sides are, are have some truth, right? There, there are viruses and bacteria that can function as pathogens in when the environment and ecosystem is perturbed. But the new science of the last 20 years has really completely ended you know, what we should think of as the old germ theory world. You shared a link in the show notes by Sean Carroll. And it, what I loved about in Scientific American, what I loved about that article was how he relates conspiracy theorists with uh, creationists. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's actually something I've done for a long time. And seeing that and the way he laid it out, I was so happy to see that. And what creation theorists did was they created a debate that there were both sides. Is yeah. it evolutionary biology or is it creationism? And the, the, the funny thing is that is what Zach is doing right here because he's saying, you know, Beauchamp, you know, there's still this <laughs> argument. And no, there's not. <laughs> there's not. There's like Pasteur run out because his science was sound. And terrain theory, again, this is what this is why I opened with the segment that I did, because we do need to pay more attention to environmental influence on our health. I absolutely sure. agree with that. Of course. But to say that germ theory is false, it, it's so patently absurd that I I hear it and I don't the more I research it and Beauchamp and what they believe, the more I'm just blown away that people are taking this seriously right now. Yeah, that debate somehow still needs to be continued. I mean, really, what it what it it's it's the same structure as what the quantum charlatans do, right? We're going to talk about some idealized time in the past where we had access to to special wisdom and and you know being in touch with nature or being in touch with the mystical truth of the universe. And then we're going to talk about science as sort of taking us away from that through some set of mistakes, even though those set of quote unquote mistakes have led to you know all of the great advances of medical science, including vaccines and antiseptics and uh, and and hand washing and antibiotics, right? All the things that have extended human lifespan and, and reduced the effects of horrible, horrible diseases. This, there was a wrong move back there. And now there's a new paradigm. And the new paradigm is showing that what we thought back in the day was actually true. And, you know, this is this, this debate from, what is it, the 1860s between Antoine Béchamp and Louis Pasteur. It, it, it's, long, it's long been settled. Uh, Antoine Beauchamp, who, by the way, also rejected cell theory. He not only rejected germ theory, which is the basis of all modern medicine, he rejected cell theory, which is the basis of all fucking biology. Like, but the debate need, we, it's, just, it's exactly like creationists. So no, these, these things still, they're, both sides have good points. Well, here's what I wanted to get to before in, in the intro when we were talking about government legislation. Uh, first off, it should be noticed that terrain theory advocates back in the day were responsible for creating the sanitary movement, which completely revolutionized America's public health infrastructure. So it's, again, not there isn't value in understanding that our environment matters, but I've always said this. We've all always said this. When these conspiracy theories and these critics are coming up, look at what they're selling. And so if you go to the mclinic.com, which is Zach Bush's 
website for his clinic, I look at the list of services and I see the first two, integrative nutrition and Ayurveda. Okay, Matthew, and probably you could speak much more eloquently about Ayurveda than myself, but these are, you know, there's, these are sound practices in some capacities, integrative nutrition, very important. The next down, GDV imaging. That is an electrophotonic imaging system that provides non-invasive and immediate evaluation of the human energy field using a weak electric, electrical current applied at the fingertips. He sells hydration respiration. And then we get back to more commentary, common territory, infrared sauna. Okay, I love infrared saunas. They, you know, it feels good at the very least. Integrative medicine, mobility. Then we get to phase angle measurement, which you've brought up yep. before. Yeah. Then you get to postural alignment, which is sounds kind of like chiropractic in the sense that all disease comes from uh, a misalignment in the, in the body. Yeah. yeah. Um, body talk, solid state, which is again this var- energy patterns and sound wave therapy and sound therapy is actually I think is important, but the way it's presented here, I'm just like so. All that's to say two things. So Zach calls for more governmental legislation. What if the government said it and said, let's do some studies on GDV imaging and postural alignment. Would he be so open to, to interfere or would that be interference at that point? Would that be, they just don't understand because that's what he hints at constantly. And actually in the first segment with Robert Kennedy talking, he's like a brilliant scientist, somebody who he agrees with and wants to put forward that idea. Mm-hmm. So anytime it, it's like there's this, it's this constant thing. There's this system that's against us and everyone mm-hmm. in it is corrupt except mm-hmm. for the people <laughs> who, who we agree with. And you know what? Then we're going to talk about their credentials all day because they did this and that. Exactly. Yeah. He's a triple certified uh, board, you know, whatever, all of his qualifications, all of his experience. Uh, the scientific model, of course, is completely lacking in, in humanity and spiritual wisdom and connection with nature. But then here's this machine that I'm going to plug into your fingertips to measure the electrical current to tell you what you, which supplements you need to buy from me. It's uh, yeah. Well, let's okay. That's that's my name. Okay, let's get well, let's let's keep rolling. Let's get back to AIDS. And so as you start to point towards something like HIV, that's very much in the old germ theory model where we thought, oh, here's a virus that causes AIDS. And if you read in the vast majority of peer-reviewed science journals that are about to speak to anything about HIV. The first sentence or two will be HIV is the virus that causes the syndrome AIDS. And unfortunately, that sentence never has a reference. You can never find a scientific reference for that because there's never been a scientific study that proved that giving something HIV caused AIDS. We've given it to monkeys, we've given it to mice, we've given it to humans, and it doesn't cause anything in and of itself, you actually have to put it into an organism and then destroy that organism's immune system before you start to see HIV, you know, partner with anything else. But all of the symptoms of AIDS are not caused by HIV, which is interesting. Like you mentioned Kaposi's sarcoma or you, the leukemias that are common in AIDS or the, uh, the uh, skin disorders that happen with AIDS or the pneumonias. All of these are caused primarily by herpes viruses, not HIV at all. And so when we say HIV causes AIDS, all we can really say is there's a correlation of events that when somebody presents with this broad immune deficiency that now has an abnormal relationship to all the herpes viruses 
and hepatitis viruses are commonly also, and then this HIV, they all are this, this new, they're symptomatic of this new imbalance rather than a pathogenic attack. He really relies on the probably correct assumption that most people listening to him have no idea what he's talking about. So if, if he can, if he can string together these very jargon laden and also sometimes poetic, uh, set of assertions and just keep building and building and building it, 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 it's intriguing, right? At the very least, it's interesting. It's intriguing. He sounds like an expert. Uh, he's mostly just repeating classic AIDS denialism of the sort that we talked about before, Peter Duesberg type stuff, all of it's been debunked, but he blends that then with wholly uncontroversial accounts of how HIV damages immunity, such that patients become vulnerable to a variety of other pathogens. You don't die from AIDS, you die from all of the complications that arise as a result of your immune system being damaged by, by HIV. We know that HIV attacks very specific aspects of your, of your ability to create certain types of cells that give you immunity. The scientific consensus, in fact, since 1988 has been that HIV causes AIDS. And any, any, any uh, page that you find on the internet that is reputable will have a citation for that. The predictive factor for developing AIDS is always having been infected with HIV. People without HIV do not develop AIDS. Now, are there some complicated things in there? Sure. Does the environment matter? Sure. But look at Magic Johnson, for God's sake. This is, a, this is an elite world-class athlete who you know, developed the syndrome and he had, he had enough money to get the kind of treatment that kept him healthy for a long time. But, and what amazes me about this, when you tease it all apart, this is a very similar argument to that study that came out that said 94% of people aren't dying from COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, right? They're dying from other mm -hmm. things. And what, what's so fascinating, particularly about Zach Bush is he spends so much time talking about the microbes in the soil and the ocean and the air and how we need to get back to nature and the interconnectedness of everything. And then you get to the virus and he's like, yeah, they're dying of other things as if the human body isn't an interconnected series of yeah, exactly, exactly. So it, it, it's absolutely, I mean, even, even the talk about glyphosate and all of the other chemicals they talk about being introduced in the environment that, that ha has downstream effects, that's all about interconnectedness. So it's, it gets back again and again to the same thing. It's just like, it's, it's interconnectedness when it fits the narrative of what I want to sell you. But then when we are talking about the interconnectedness of biology and how biological systems work with viruses, then I'm going to complete, com take a completely different narrative approach to it. And that's what he's doing in all of this trance talk as Matthew would, would reference as he does on, on Monday's talk about the hypnotism that mm -hmm. someone like Bush um, puts forward to make you think he knows what he's talking about. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to polio next. <laughs> Why not? Because that was in this talk. Well, you know, as you know, a lot of people look at the polio as people who are kind of promoting vaccination. And there's this mythology that the polio vaccine eliminated polio. And there's other people who argue that polio has been around for thousands of years. And that it was causing during <laughs> that time maybe a mild cold. Many people who had polio didn't know it, but it, something happened in the 1880s and 1890s that that allowed polio virus to get into the spinal column and begin paralyzing a small percentage of people who were exposed to it. 
One of the hypotheses is that that was the generalized use of pesticides, particularly early on of the arsenic and mercury-based pesticides, and later on to DDT, and that polio, wild polio, generally disappeared um, on the same timeline as uh, as DDT was eliminated. For example, in our country, DDT was banned in 73, and the last polio case occurred in 79. And as you, again, uh, polio usually affected people during the summer months, during the spraying season. The people who were most commonly affected were people who bathed in, in, uh, in farm ponds. And that, in fact, is where FDR apparently um, came down with it. But that, uh, so you know, that's kind of consistent with what you're. So the, yeah, the- okay, so some history here, and, and I'll have a little bit to say. Uh, there, there is evidence that polio dates back to ancient Egypt, at least, but it's not until 1931 that the three viruses which cause polio are identified. In 1948, Weller and Robbins successfully grow polio cells in the lab and are given a Nobel Peace Prize, a Nobel Prize for that after a few years. And seven years later, Jonas Salk develops a vaccine that gets us underway to being polio-free in the United States by 1979. So yes on germ theory, yes on cell theory, and yes on vaccines. But Bush and Kennedy aren't going to let any of these facts interfere with their larger narrative, right? Name that viruses are harmless and only become a problem when people are gay or using drugs or spraying pesticides or using flame retardants or somehow being compromised by vaccines, the very thing that, that has helped us to deal with these terrible diseases. These guys have some highly questionable sources. But here's what I'm able to glean and to, to be somewhat fair to them, okay? Polio does, does seem to have existed at low levels of incidence for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. When the larger epidemic started around 1910 in the developed world, they were usually in cities and it was usually in the warmer months. It's not precisely known why, because we don't fucking know everything about the world all the time. That's not how science progresses. But there is one speculative hypothesis that it was actually improved sanitation in cities that would have led to less exposure to the virus earlier in life and therefore less acquired immunity that led to it being more widespread in cities. And that in the summer heat, the virus was naturally more transmissible because, disgusting as it is, it's an oral fecal disease. So it's transmitted by somehow ingesting fecal matter in in small amounts. Flies were believed to be a vector of transmission. And so, yes, to get rid of the flies, DDT was sprayed to eradicate them. But the disease was already a problem at that point. And importantly, polio was rampant in the cities, not in the countryside where DDT was being widely used and other pesticides would have been widely used agriculturally. And DDT actually did lead to other problems. It's a, it's a, you know, a notoriously toxic chemical. Well, I have more comments after this next clip because they talk about polio. They continue. Uh, but I will just mention that if you want to wrap your head about what polio did, I highly recommend Philip Roth's book, Nemesis, which talks about the polio outbreak uh, and what people were experiencing in Newark in the 30s and I, 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 30s and 40s. I grew up about a half hour south of Newark 
there aren't any farm ponds in Newark. That's one thing I can be maybe way back in the day, but not at that time. Interesting idea. Let me say one other thing about DDT. The hypothesis that DDT caused polio to become more rampant carries very little scientific weight. And part of why I feel confident saying that is it's such a controversial and now banned substance. It's been found to have so many environmental and carcinogenic dangers. It's been super well studied and there's no strong case being made for it in relationship with polio, nor to the ending of it being in, in circulation, uh, fitting with you know polio being eradicated instead of the vaccine being, being what we get to thank for that. Uh, so this is really about that larger narrative. And these guys are just trying to shoehorn everything into that same story using correlation uh, as a basis for causation. We can draw this timeline and say, well, DDT, polio, it must be a match. They have to. I mean, because especially for Kennedy, I mean, everyone is pointing to the fact that polio vaccine intervention was hugely important. And so if you're an anti-vaxxer, of course, you're going to go and be like, well, guess what? I have this. But let's mm-hmm. let's hear them talk a little bit. You, this wouldn't be a conversation we go. spirituality <laughs> if we didn't talk about Bill Gates. How do you anticipate that Bill Gates is going to be writing you a big check for that fund? Bill Gates is is, is a, a huge opportunity because if you look at you know you know two months before the the, the outbreak of the pandemic, we get a big Netflix series on Bill's brain. Uh, incredible timing there. This is the most you know public thing that Bill's ever done is this Netflix series on himself and all the books he reads and all the diet cokes he drinks. Uh, and you know, from a physician standpoint, I watched that and said, "Wow, he is going to be very well preserved in the grave because when you drink diet coke, it actually turns into formaldehyde, and and so his tissues are full of formaldehyde, so he'll, he may never rot in the grave." Um, enough diet coke there for preservation. But from a, a bigger standpoint, when you see him sitting down with Warren Buffett in the cafe. And there, he's drawing out on his napkin like, well, we went in and, and attacked polio over here, but then it popped up over here in, in northern India. And so then we put people on bikes and we infiltrated there and we got it suppressed there, but then it popped up over here. And he's playing this whack-a-mole game with polio in northern Italy right now or northern India right now because he's you know got this mindset of like, I can outthink this virus. I can outthink it if I can just do the right things and put enough money into it. But what is obvious from my standpoint, you know, with my the radical explosion that happened to my old paradigm, if I'd watched that 10 years ago, wouldn't have even thought about it. Yeah, he's on a journey to try to beat polio. What became so obvious while I'm watching that is the scientists that are advising Bill Gates and, and his funds handed him a two-dimensional chessboard. And he's trying to move the checkers around on this board in this two-dimensional plane, and he can't win because the microbiome is a three-dimensional ecosystem, which is soil, water, and air. The air we breathe, 10 to the 31 viruses. The, the water that we bathe in, 10 to the 30 viruses. The soil we eat from, 10 to the 31 viruses. 10 to the 31 is 10 million times more than stars in the entire universe. Like, these are massive numbers of viruses. And here he's trying to beat it out with this, like, little human strategy. There is no human strategy for balance with the biome. It, it's, it's a biology strategy. It's a Mother Earth strategy. Humans are a tiny little piece of the puzzle. And so I'm excited to hand Bill Gates a three-dimensional model. I say, you know what? You want to stop <laughs> India of any type, whether it's endemic polio or you know HIV or you pick your thing. I can show you how to beat that in less than a decade by changing the innate immune system of that population. And we did it in the United States successfully to eradicate polio. We didn't do that with a with a vaccine. We did it through changing the ecosystem around those kids. So we coordinated pools. 
to put kids into an environment where they were no longer bathing in those warm environments that would proliferate uh, the, the milieu for that virus to overexpress itself in the environment. We stopped irradiating the tonsils of children. We stopped cutting out the tonsils of children in the 1970s, finding out that universal tonsillectomy was a terrible idea because that's the beginning of their innate immune system as well as their adaptive immune system and their upper respiratory system. You give them back their tonsils and stop swimming in, in, in you know, warm pools in the middle of summer, suddenly polio was gone. Did you follow all that? I mean, we started we started with Diet Cokes and we ended up with him somehow having been part of eradicating polio. <laughs> I I just want to point out first again the the trance style like yeah. there were so many things in there that just were interconnected except for in Zach's brain. And first of all, just what is that about Bill Gates? Like he is the boogeyman they have to invoke. There was a whole uh, on the on the Monday's episode on the bonus, uh, you know, with Tim Kennedy and JP yeah. throwing in Bill Gates just for no reason. Yeah. It's yeah. Like I have to get this in there, and and this idea that not swimming in warm pools and not getting your tonsils out cured polio. That's what there's. That's what Bush is saying right there. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know what to say about it. I mean, I mean, you kind of have to like break each phrase or sentence apart to try and to try and follow what he was saying before he changed the subject. But this is the clearest conspiracy assertion I've heard from him. Right. That what a coincidence that Netflix came that comes out with this documentary right before the pandemic. Oh, my goodness. If Bill Gates has this opportunity. Um, but you know what? Your old paradigm was correct, Zach. Bill Gates really is using his money and time trying to eradicate polio in poor countries like it has been eradicated in wealthy countries using a vaccine. And I really want to say shame on you to both of these guys because they're, they're, they're discrediting of this incredible philanthropist who I, I see Bill Gates as being that. He may have his flaws. He may have also be, be, have been and still be a capitalist in certain ways. But it's just the smearing that goes on with him and then, the, and then trying to fit it into this just BS grandiosity about claims of attunement to mother nature and how with his special 3d model, he could, he could solve the problems Bill Gates is having in a single decade because he's got the, you know, he's got the secret sauce. It's just appalling. Because I, that did, we didn't even flesh all that out, but there was a moment where, I mean, Bush just says he can solve basically all diseases in a decade. I mean, to that claim he makes, and it's, it, it's, it's just absurd. And also this, I, again, getting back to Gates, first off, I hate Windows. Like I've been a Mac user for a long time. Yeah, me too, like, me too. It's not like there's some there's some big conspiracy. But again, what's like at underlying all of this, what is the conspiracy? I linked to a um, an article that just came out today on JAMA that shows that right now um, the uh, U.S. Health, Health and Human Services Department has announced that they are going to be covering vaccines in all 50 states, DC, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands, 60% of pharmacies uh, in, in everywhere that America has a footprint, will the vaccines are going to be made available to, for free to people. So it's a scam. What, yeah, what, <laughs> what is this? What is the conspiracy theory leading to? Yeah. Um, Paul Offit, who, who created the retrovirus uh, vaccine that gets a lot of flack for, People are, you know, often criticize him. Oh, he was just a money monger. Somebody broke down in a book, and I should find it to reference it. But 
he spent 20 or 25 years working on that vaccine. And then like the amount of money he made from that, if you broke it down per year, it was a nice salary. It worked out to something like $200,000 a year or something over 25 years, but he didn't get that till after all of that work. Mm. And, and this idea that vaccine is, are this giant moneymaker. Uh, Jonathan Berman points out in, in our interview in the book that vaccines account for 2% of pharmaceutical profits every year. And so I just don't understand what the conspiracy theory is. Like, look at opioids, look at antidepressants. That's where the money making happens. And that's where a lot of the shadiness happens. And I'm not fully. Uh, happy with the way that they've rolled out. Uh, I wrote an article about the AstraZeneca trials and how they flub them and that there needs to be more transparency by pharmaceutical companies. But the idea that these figures like, you know, microchips, um, you, know, uh, you know, money over and over again. And when you get down to it, it's like they have to just put the name out there. It doesn't matter. You just It's just the image of the person that they're really just trying to just notice how they did it. Diet Coke. Let's focus on Bill's Diet Coke. What does that have to do with his philanthropy? Yeah, it's it's kind of like the Mickey Willis pandering to get the laugh, right? And it's also Gates is like the uh, he's the he's the the conspiritualist version of George Soros. Yeah, right. Yeah, we're all any, three any, together. I mean, that's what yeah. Willis's next documentary is on. It's on Gates mm-hmm. and Soros. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to conclude this with one more reference because I, I think this trans-hypnotic talk, I think nothing in this talk was more indicative of this um, last section of, of Bush talking about Mother Nature here. So fast. Mother Nature has got her hand and arms out to us. She wants to welcome us back into a thriving state as a species within her womb again. We don't need to solve the problem. She already has the solutions. We need to stop are are banging our head against her and realize that we are from nature, not against nature. We are the result of the microbiome. We are not against the microbiome. We are literally the adaptive experience of the virome itself. We would not be human. We, in fact, could not have mammals without the intelligence of the virome having built our genome. Our genome is the result of a direct insert of viral data. 52% of the human genome directly inserted from viruses over the last few billion years. So we would not be here without the virus. We would not be here without the health of the microbiome within us. The paradigm is already there. The science is already proven out. Now it's time for mobilization and a coherent plan for the public. And so that's that's my excitement is we can just shake it off. I, it's so easy to get stressed out about the powers that be. And you hear things about a deep state or a cabal or all these things. Like we're the, we're the decision. We're in the driver's seat, literally. We can keep going down there fear and guilt paradigm and and play into the whole thing or we can just create an alternative pathway and the whole thing no matter how powerful it feels is going to fall apart instantaneously because we simply extricated ourselves from that environment and we created the future that we want and so i'm excited that just like the innate immune system different than the adaptive immune system we don't have to fight against anything the innate immune system is an intelligent, adaptive machine that keeps us in a healthy relationship to biodiversity. And in fact, it embraces biodiversity. It never tries to kill a virus or kill a bacteria. It looks to, to welcome that biodiversity into its environment. We now just need to be, build socioeconomic and political environments that look like that. What if we invite, invited every opportunity to create more biodiversity within our political thought process and our societal patterns of behavior and, and the Ultimately, your dinner table. When was the last time your dinner table became a natus for fellowship with biodiversity? 
think about that for your socialization. And so this is how we create the new future nearly instantaneously. For oh. all of these guys and their talk about nature. Yeah. For f- it took four to five million years for the Homo lineage to break off from the other apes. And it's been, I reference this number a lot, but it's been 350,000 years since the Homo sapiens and the other Homo lineages that we've mostly killed off. There's probably 10 or 11 that we know of now um, to, to get to the industrial revolution. For all of that time, humans were in the middle of the food chain. We were prey animals. We were hunters, but we were also preyed upon by larger animals and then obviously by viruses. Not, 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 not pandemics. That is a phenomenon that is associated with modern agricultural techniques from about 12,000 years on. But viruses have always been something that killed us quickly. Well, large predators killed us too, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't fight against them because they're part of the holy tapestry <laughs> of nature as well, right? Well, that's exactly it. And that's when I hear like speeches like this from Bush and others that nature, it's this idea that nature is benevolent and only mm-hmm. here for us. I mean, mm-hmm. he references that by saying we are part, he's right, we are part of nature. Sure. But that doesn't mean nature won't kill us in an instant and it, and has over and over again. And so this this just really, this is why I think Bush has become a, a sort of a darling, to use Willis's term, of of the wellness community mm-hmm. because it's it's pure ego. It's this pure idea that humans are here. We dominate the planet. Nature is here for us. Don't worry about the 80 billion animals we kill every year to sustain us. Let's just focus on us. And then when we get an insult at us like a virus, then we don't know how to handle it because we think we're the chosen child of some divine power. Yeah, it's also the the romanticism. This this romanticism of nature is is huge in the wellness space, right? It's huge in the ultimate space. It's it's basically the narrative that we hear throughout this dialogue, which is that the only reason that viruses ever become a problem for for large numbers of human beings is because of some sort of advance within within human science and technology, and that that the, the if, if we could just get back to some romantic time in the past where everything was perfect, then we would live in balance and in harmony with nature. It's such an appealing idea. I used to believe this idea. I think most people in our space have some kind of uh, affinity for this sort of idea. And I agree with you. It's why Zach has, has become so popular. And it's why we hear in all of our conspiritualists, certain of his ideas get repeated like a kind of liturgy again and again and again. In 1900, 30% of deaths were children under five. One century later, it was 1.4% of all deaths. Thank you, vaccines and antibiotics and hygiene practices. And if we were in a state where 30% of deaths were, again, children, I don't think we'd have the grandiose beliefs that we now have. And so we, we've had these technologies, we have this science, these advances, and we're now turning our back on them because there is problems with our systems, but the overall science and medicine is sound. And that you you nailed it because this over romanization of who we are is going to be at least part of our downfall.
Jonathan Berman is an assistant professor in the Department of Basic Sciences at the New York Institute of Technology in Arkansas. He is an active science communicator, and he served as national co-chair of the 2017 March for Science. I recently came by his book, Anti-Vaxxers, How to Challenge a Misinformed Movement. And I was struck by the fact that as a medical professional who cares deeply about vaccination and understanding science and his advocacy, that he wanted to write a book that reaches out and tries to help educate people regardless of their beliefs of vaccines. So I reached out to MIT Press and they sent me a copy and, and thankfully Jonathan had some time to talk to me about techniques to use to talk to anti-vaxxers, some basic vaccine science, as well as why we should not be fearing the current COVID-19 vaccines. First off, uh, congratulations and thank you for your book. It, uh, I think it came at the right time and it's an extremely important book considering where we are right now. Um, and it's very easy. I know from my own history of being caught up, being combative towards anti-vaxxers, but you took a different approach, a more educational and informative uh, take uh, to put forward in your book. And why did you choose to make a very educational and welcoming book as you did? Um, so there's a long answer to that. I don't I guess we have an hour, so I, I can kind of give it. I kind of came up through in the world of skepticism in 2005 to 2010. Um, this is when I was sort of in college and, and think, learning about these things, thinking about these things. And the people who were popular then were people like Richard Dawkins, um, Christopher Hitchens, um, people who were very intelligent, but they were, they were kind of bullies. And they... I think that was appealing to people because when you have someone who's a bully on your side, um, that that almost feels good and make, makes you want to be with them on, on their side. And over time, I got a lot more I, a lot more disappointed with that approach. Um, I don't think it was working. I don't think it was making people see skepticism in a positive light. And and then in this decade or, or this past decade, there was kind of an implosion where it turned out a lot of the leaders in the skeptics movement had sort of regressive views and used um, the language of skepticism to reinforce um, regressive views. And and so I wanted to, to, I wanted to have a version of skepticism that kept what I think is the positive part, which is, you know, finding community in, in critical thinking and analyzing and and being um, thoughtful about what's true, and and also maintains compassion and empathy and what's kind of good about being a person. So, when it was time to to write the book. A lot of the, the anti-vaccine things I see online are things on Facebook or, or Twitter where I think it's called, I, I would call it dunking on anti-vaxxers. It's um, making fun of them, say, well, that's so crazy a thing to believe that we must make fun of it. And 
and never really engaging with what they're saying or why they believe it. And I it just didn't strike me as the compassionate way to analyze it. Um, so the original title for the book while I was working on it was Understanding the Anti-Vaccine Movement. Um, and the publisher thought how to challenge anti-vaxxers, how to challenge a misinformed movement was better. So I said, okay, you're, you're publishing me. Um, but I, I approached it as um, kind of a deep dive. What, what's the research that's been done on it? Why would someone take that position that seems to be anti-science? And why would someone who is otherwise pro-science, someone who understands climate change is happening or someone who um, you know, makes use of science in their everyday life, why would they take on anti-vaccine views? Um, and it's not because they're stupid, right? It's not because they're malignant for the most part. It's, you know, they have, they're responding to normal fears and, and concerns that all of us have. Well, you go through some of the underlying beliefs of the vaccine hesitant anti-vaxxers. You mentioned social class, individual liberties, uh, individual and collective rights, and changing ideas about health and medicine. Uh, what do you think are the top ones that people who are pro-vaccine and want to address anti-vaxxers, like what should we understand most about the reasons why people are vaccine hesitant? I think we need to understand that they are making a risk evaluation just like we're making a risk evaluation. Um, they're making a decision for themselves or for their children, and they're trying to make the best decision they can. Um, now, they're doing it differently, and I would say they're doing it in a less reasonable and healthy way um, and arriving at the wrong decision. That doesn't mean um, that doesn't mean that we have to you know call them stupid or, or act like they're foolish. It means we can sort of have that two-way conversation with them saying, well, why do you believe that? Okay, and then explain why we believe what we believe. And then hopefully that's a more productive way to go about it. Um, but yeah, I think I would want people to know that they're they're trying to, um, and that if we have you know a degree of compassion for them or a degree of empathy, then I think we can be a little bit more effective in communicating that vaccination is a good idea. Have in your own conversations, I know in the book you write about a female friend of yours watching a movie and that you remained friends even though you had different uh -oh. ideas about vaccines, but. In your own history, have you been able to convince people who are hesitant or anti-vax of the, the value of the efficacy of vaccines? I don't see the project as being a street epistemology where I'm, I'm going out and trying to convince people. Mm -hmm. um, I have had people say that, okay, this book helped um, allay some of my fears, um, things like that. Um, or, you know, okay, this is pretty convincing. Um, but I have never gone on the project of one by one talking people out of anti-vaccine views um, because I don't think that's necessarily the, the best way to go about it. Um, I think if I did that, I, I did one a month, um, 
I could convince 12 people to vaccinate in a year. Uh, I think that for me, I want to be working on, on you know, how do, how do we send this message and, you know, what, what has worked in the past and, and those kinds of questions. Um, but also, um, since the book came out and the six months prior to that, I've been stuck inside. Well, you actually write, you write that the, you wrote the book before the pandemic hit and you do reference it a little bit, but you, you make sure to say that, you know, this is more of an evergreen book in a sense, uh, historically. Uh, but now that there is a coronavirus vaccine and it's starting to be distributed, what threats do you see that the anti-vaccination movement has uh, on the health of our society, given this current situation? Um, yeah, so since I wrote it, a lot has happened in the vaccine world, um, which sort of makes it out of date the instant it's published. <laughs> um there has been a growth in the anti-vaccine movement um, since then. And a number I saw said something like seven and a half million people had either joined anti-vaccine Facebook groups or, or, um, or subscribed to YouTube channels. Um, and those could be some of the same people. Um, but it's still, that sounds like a lot of growth. And, some of the people who have been actively working on anti-vaccine campaigns um, seem to be um, allying themselves with the anti-mask, anti-lockdown protests. And I think the anti-vaxxers get out of that an audience. And the anti-mask, anti-lockdown protesters get a, um, a set of tactics that have been honed and refined over decades for um, for sort of anti-public health measures. Um, and then they can kind of brand themselves as public health freedom fighters or, or something like that. Mm. Um, I don't know that they'll, they'll prevent us from, from having enough people vaccinated to slow down the pandemic here. Um, but I can see them, there, a lot of this strategy over the last decade has been finding individual communities to target um, so you could see them crafting messaging to specific countries or specific subgroups. And so we'll probably have outbreaks of coronavirus for a long time. Humans were likely, and you reference this, and I, I, I hear what you're saying about being outdated as soon as it's published, but at the same time, I really feel that historical understanding of vaccination and the process that led us here is also always relevant, and there isn't enough writing about that. Now, you write that humans were likely to die from communicable disease diseases for most of history up, I mean, especially since the dawn of agriculture through the 19th century, but humans seem to have short memories or a lack of historical understanding sometimes, especially when it comes to science communication. So do you think we're victims of our own success in some manner? Uh, to some degree, yeah. Um, I mean, looking at some of the, the anti-vaccine rhetoric in the 1850s, one of the really striking things was that people had forgotten how, how bad smallpox was in the 1850s. So they were saying, well, no, hardly anyone dies of smallpox anymore. That's like 60 years ago, 50 years ago. And 
uh, it's it's kind of how we feel about polio now. Is like, polio isn't around. Why would you get a polio vaccine? Well, who's ever heard of someone getting measles? Why would you get a measles? Chicken pox. What are you? Some kind of dinosaur getting chicken pox? So, yeah, I mean, kind of once we've eliminated a disease or made it rare, it's harder to make the argument to people how important it is to get vaccinated for it uh, because the disease isn't around and you're probably not going to get it either way. So then that equation of personal benefits and personal risks versus collective benefits and collective risks, that shifts a little bit because there's fewer personal benefits um, and seemingly fewer collective benefits as well. Um, but then if enough people make that calculation, then it comes back. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, there are aspects of science and vaccination specifically that I feel pretty well versed on given my history, but there are other aspects of it I don't. And one of them is, uh, as I'm not a parent, uh, I don't plan on having children. And some of my friends who are pro-science and even pro-vaccination, they're a little overwhelmed by the vaccine schedule for children. And that seems to be a wedge issue in the anti-vaccination movement saying that I'm 45. So the time I was growing up, you know, there was maybe a dozen or 20 vaccinations, if that. And now they're, I, I don't know the numbers because I don't pay close enough attention to that. How do you feel about the number of vaccines that have now are now being given to children? And how do you address a parent who, again, might be pro-science, but does have that concern that there's so many vaccinations their children has to get? I mean, if it's a scheduling problem, pediatrician might work with you, I think, um, or catch you up on your next visit or whatever. Um, I think that it seems it, it, it seems like an intervention um, that say, well, I'm doing something to the child, um, and so I'm making a choice to put that child at risk. Um, but the risk profiles for all of the vaccines that are being given are, are pretty well studied, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you don't see um, huge statistically discernible effects among the children who are getting vaccinated, um, even with even on the CDC recommended schedule. Um, and you also don't see huge outbreaks of infectious disease. Um, so there has been some alternative schedules recommended by people who have, um, who have alternative medicines and things to sell. Um, those alternative schedules sort of delay certain vaccines. Um, the trouble I have with that is that it doesn't, uh, doesn't give any benefit um, and it opens up the time window where the child is vulnerable. So if you say, well, I won't do flu vaccine yet. I'll start them on flu vaccine when they're seven. Well, then maybe that child gets the flu and they're okay, but they pass it to um, their infant sister who isn't yet capable of fighting off the flu. Or they pass it to an elderly relative um, who has a weakened immune system. Um, 
or you have a situation where you say, well, measles isn't around and they're already getting the flu shot. So let's hold off on measles until next year. And then the kid gets measles because there's a measles outbreak. Um, those kinds of things can happen. Um, and there, there just isn't a reason to make that delay. Um, now, I, I guess I would rather have people do that than not vaccinate at all. Um, but I, I think what that's doing is it's kind of acting as a relief valve for people's desire to feel like they've made a choice and they have a, a choice in the system. Um, and so it's, it's not the worst thing, which would be not vaccinating at all, but it's also not great. Mm. Yeah. Now, Vaccine advocates don't really have the same level of, uh, to put it in a word that you talk about briefly, celebrity that other sciences have. Paul Offit will probably never be Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, so you you write, I really appreciated the part where you say celebrities make their fame, <laughs> not as science advocates, and then they sometimes spill over there. But the anti-vax movement has Andrew Wakefield, Del Bigtree, RFK Jr., and more recently, Mickey Willis. Uh, so how do we effectively fight against the propaganda that men like this are promoting and the cult of personality that's been built up around them? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I have 300 something Twitter followers. Um, celebrity is tough because you, you look at what celebrity is. It's a lot of people who know your name, know your face, and want something from you. Um, and I think that's kind of universally what celebrity is because either people want to have sex with you, they want your money, they want your attention, they want your time. So I, I have some empathy for, for celebrities too. And I think once someone's in that position, it's, it's really easy for them to hear the positive messages about themselves things like, oh, you're, you were brilliant in that movie. Oh, you're, you're, you're so good. Oh, you're the best. Um, I loved that thing you wrote about X or Y. And to, to start to think that your platform is a qualification to, to talk about things um, that are outside of that field. Now, I think people like Del Bigtree and, and Wakefield are more deliberate than that. Um, they've made a choice. Um, and that they're going to be the anti-vaccine guys. Um, and so there's less of a degree to which people who are pro-science are celebrity-driven. Uh, they still are, um, because you do still see people like Bill Nye, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, as kind of science celebrities, Adam Savage. Um, and so they have a platform that's powerful they can use to spread the message, but that's also still kind of doing the same preaching to the choir that um, Andrew Wakefield is or his Del Victory is. Um, I, I think there's a degree of grift in what they're doing. They're collecting donations from their audience of anti-vaccine people they've built up. Um, and, you know, you could, you could call what science celebrities are doing similar. Um, they're preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to the choir. I'm not a celebrity, but I'm preaching to the choir, too. Uh, I think reaching people 
reaching people is the toughest thing you can do as a science communicator or, or advocate. Um, and I don't know how. I've done it a few times. I was one of the people running the March for Science a few years ago, and that went viral. I don't understand how it went viral. <laughs> um, I've done a lot of interviews for, for this book. Um, I was on MSNBC yesterday. I don't know why they got, decided to put me on, but they did. So I think the best you can do is put good things out in the world and hope that people see them or appreciate them um, or, or, or want to spread them and kind of ignore the celebrity aspect of it. Um, I don't think that's someone I would, something I would wish on someone. Um, and, you know, maybe we could use more of science celebrities, but I don't know who I would want to, to punish that way. <laughs> Well, you mentioned, you say, you know, how MSNBC chose you, but honestly, again, I've been writing about the anti-vaccination movement for a decade and there isn't a plethora of really good literature that like a lot of my understanding comes from general medical books or science books that I've read that includes vaccination. Uh, so having something that is just so handy and readable, I think is very important and, and needed. Um, but talking about uh, science journalism uh how how do how would you as a communicator advocate for journalists trying to discuss vaccinations i, I want to give an example uh there you know in one of the trials two people died um one three days after vaccination of of uh i forget what it was uh and then someone else 62 days after the vaccination but i've noticed that some anti-vax newsletters are using this as evidence that you can die from it, even though they were completely unrelated deaths to the vaccination. So, and and the BBC covered it, which is important, but it was sort of a sensationalist headline. And so you're getting into that problem again of two people die in vaccination problems. So how would you advocate for journalists covering, especially right now as we go through these trials and the rollout of the vaccines? Yeah, I have a hard I have a hard time understanding the mindset of journalism. Um, it's so different from what I do. Um, I'm, I'm a lab guy. I'm in the lab most of the time, and so when I talk to, to journalists, usually in the past, usually I'm, I'm making the incorrect assumption that they're on my side, um, and that well, I have a positive message to spread about vaccination or about climate change or whatever, and so. You know, the journalists, this is true, they'll want to spread it, right? Um, and I, the hard lesson over time has been that that's not always the case. Um, sci scientists do have agendas, and journalists are aware of that. And journalists have agendas, too, and scientists need to be aware of that. Um, and I think we're both, science and journalists are both interested in the truth. We just have different ways of, of, of getting at it and, and sharing. Um, so to take your example of, of the people who died, the way a scientist would look at that would be to say, okay, is this causative? Um, what is the relationship between the intervention and the outcome, which is a death? Because this is a very serious negative indicator if, we, if we're killing someone with this vaccine. 
and then you 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 do statistics, you do a numerical analysis, um, you you use the plausibility of mechanism as a tool as well, and you you make the best determination you can. And I think that's context that's hard to translate into a headline. Um, because it's hard for me to imagine an editor saying that the headline would be okay. Um, two people die from Pfizer vaccine, but statistical analysis shows that although there's is a correlation, it's not positive. <laughs> It'd probably probably be too long. Um, uh, so uh, I I don't want to advise journalists. Um, because you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in that. I, w- I would hope that you know they would have caution when reporting that. To at, and and I think most would have the sense to ask the people who are running the study and evaluating it the question: Is this related to the vaccine? Is this causative? Um, and what context should this be put in? Um, as far as safety. Um, now, I say that, but then this is a corporation. These are the, the comfortable to be afflicted as well. Um, so I think there's also a, you know, reasonable distrust of Pfizer or Moderna to say, well, okay, should we believe what this press release says about these two people? Um, and I would say that we probably should be asking hard questions of Pfizer and Moderna um, and not taking their press releases at face value necessarily. Um, but we should, you know, get context from the companies and then context from outside regulators and outside scientists. And you know, if if those are all in agreement, this is not correlative. That's, that's very telling to me. Um, so I guess it's just choosing who to listen to, which is a really hard problem. Yeah, and you're right. One of the articles I, I published a few two weeks ago was on the AstraZeneca um, press release, and I think it was titled something like "The Problems with Vaccine by Press Release." For, for that reason, because of course they only gave half the dose by mistake to a certain cohort, and then rearranged the you know rearranged the trials to match that. And it, you'd want a little more transparency from companies, especially at a time like this. At the same time, one thing I, I really appreciated that you pointed out um, is that vaccines are a very small part of pharmaceutical profits. Uh, I think I read a different book where um, they, uh, Eula Biss's book on immunity, where she talks about Paul Offit and how much he actually made on the rotavirus vaccination. And it, after it was sold and everything, it really, it was a nice six figure a year job if you average it all out, but it's not like he's making millions or even billions of dollars on vaccination. So how do you successfully do that? How do you weigh that out of being like, yes, these companies have problems, obviously opioids and antidepressants and many things in the public imagination that make us not trust them. And at the same time be like, but we kind of need this right now. Yeah, so I'm, I'm never going to avoid shill accusations just because that's the way the world is. But for the record, I'm, I'm still in the negative on the book just because of <laughs> caffeine purchases. <laughs> 
um, while I was writing it. Um, yeah, it's it's a really tough not to crack, and I don't think I did it in the book of saying, or maybe I I, I tried to approach saying, look, these are corporations; they have their own interests, which are profit and growth, um, and they're producing vaccines. Um, and we have a government that's supposed to be on our side, and sometimes is, and that government has a relationship with the industry that's probably too close, and they're producing uh, a product for the public, vaccines, which are not very profitable, but they do have a monetary interest in the vaccine going well, um, and and having their name out there and, and so forth. So it's really hard to say, yes, they have a monetary interest, but they should be trusted anyway. Um, you know, especially when the way they've chosen to communicate statements by CEOs and press releases, as an academic scientist, that's not how I would choose to communicate. Um, so I think everything should be in, in peer-reviewed publications, especially something like this. Um, and I'm not from the, the industry world, so, I, so I, I know it's very different there. But since this is a, a public-private partnership, um, I think they need to do a better job on the, on the public end of that. Um, so as far as how do we should, how, how, how do we responsibly send that message? I, I think, like you said, it's hard. Um, or maybe I said, I don't know. Someone said it. it's a hard thing to do. And I think the best that can be done is to acknowledge the shortfalls of that partnership at the same time as being realistic and honest about what the benefits are and what the the reasons to be optimistic are. Um, I would never say, well, we should only, or you should only report on the positive things about vaccines. I think that would be dishonest, um, or the only thing, positive things. I think that if they have the transparency to explain what mistakes they made and so forth, that would actually improve a lot of people's perception of the safety of the vaccine. Because then they say, okay, well, when they did make mistakes, they owned up to it. Yep. Yeah. I want to ask one more communication question. And you kind of touched on it when you were talking about alternative treatments. I, I listen to a lot of these podcasts and videos, watch videos of people who are in the anti-vaccination movement. And you will hear them during the podcast argue that we've only had three months of trials and there's no long-term evidence over what these vaccines are doing. And yet at the very beginning of the podcast, they're selling magnesium supplements, for example, and I looked into the science and yeah, it does have some benefits, but what they're selling it for is definitely not something that's been proven. Uh, I know anti-vaccination advocates who do Botox 
and they complain about not knowing what the ingredients are doing in vaccinations. And, you know, I've come from the wellness world where it's a $40 billion a year industry where all sorts of supplements are sold that have never been clinically tested in any capacity. Uh, so how, when you, when you come up against that, how do you communicate um, ab- about the ingredients, like the like that, the fact that the levels of aluminum and thimerosal in the vaccines aren't going to harm you, and that everyday products probably could harm you more than that. Yeah. Well. Well, first of all, I think there's there's an inclination to point out hypocrisy when we find it. Um, so, like, oh well, the supplement people. Are, are, the, are the people who have a financial motive to say, well, you don't know what's in vaccines and then sell you totally unregulated pills full of something, right? <laughs> that, that's hypocritical. But on the other hand, I don't think hypocrisy matters because um, it doubles my chances of agreeing with them. Um, they, they're saying if, if their argument that we, that something is wrong in the vaccine or, or bad in the vaccine is valid, then we should consider it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to take each of those claims at face value and fairly evaluate them. Just kind of what I tried to do in the book is to look at the claims about aluminum, claims about bovine serum, claims about... Uh, Mercury claims about, and you can kind of do that ad infinitum, right? Um, but I, I, I tried to pick the the biggest ones. Now, the, the coronavirus vaccine; um, these are actually very simple formulations as far as what's in them. There's salt, there's RNA, and there's a lipid to help the RNA cross cell membranes. Um, so if, if someone says, well, there's aluminum in that, you can say, well, not in this one. <laughs> you say, well, there's mercury in this vaccine. Well, not in this one. But I've uh, already seen people saying that there's thimerosal in this vaccine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that's out there now. It's, it's so impossible. <laughs> well, tell them to read the inserts. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's... It's misinformation, and it's the same problem with any misinformation, is you address it, and then you say, oh, well, okay, why do you believe that? Um, or or who, who has an interest in you believing that? Um, and we're not going to get everyone on board. Uh, it just won't happen. We just need to get enough people on board. And, you know, positive messaging. And I've, I've said this before, and it hasn't happened yet. We need a vaccine confidence project from the government or world governments. And there's bits and pieces. The UN is working on some stuff. And I think the Ad Council is working on some stuff. But there needs to be you know, strong, unified messaging. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, that's another hard problem with communication is they're, they're going to gish gallop us with a million things that are in vaccines. Do we respond to all of them? Which ones do we point to? What what do we address? And it's a really tiring conversation to have to say, no, there's there's no aluminum in it. No, there's no aborted fetuses in it. No, no there's no thimerosal in it. Um, no, there's no goblins in it. Um, 
it, it's tiring conversation to have, but if if you care about convincing people or or assuaging or or, um, or or relieving people's fears somewhat, then you can have those conversations with your family and friends. Um, like I said, I don't think people have to do the the going out and and, and doing street epistemology, convincing their neighbors and every single person. And I think it's it's a matter of having enough people in the public sphere and enough people having you know one-off conversations to convince their friends and hopefully that's enough yeah hopefully the um i don't know if because you do mostly spend your time in academic research and not like myself on the listening to these podcasts but have you noticed that one of the popular um ideas that are now going around that those circles is this idea that germ theory actually isn't true and terrain theory, Zach Bush has been really been the one who's been leading that. Uh, I see it often now. Have you come across that at all? I haven't heard of terrain theory. What is terrain theory? <laughs> uh, well, when germ theory was being developed at the same time, there was a competing, this is coming off of miasma theory. There was this idea that all sickness comes from the environment. It's not germs. It's specifically your relationship to the environment. So it actually has some crossover with miasma theory and you know the vapors coming out of the air. But this this is a little more holistic in a sense that it's the sand and the sun it's, and the oil. It's the and the, of the yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, that's giving you um, illness. I haven't heard that one in particular. Um, but I mean, also. Ultimately, to go as far back as to say germ theory isn't true, and the mountains of that's just at the level of of evolution denial and and climate change denial and 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 all of those those other things. So, you know, people who are living in a science based worldview aren't going to be swayed by those arguments, and people who aren't. I don't think that that particular argument is what's convincing them not to live in a science-based worldview. I think (laughs) they're in that worldview and this is a a justification for a behavior that they want to take part in. So if you knock down um, terrain theory for them, well, then they'll just move on to another idea, another idea, another idea. There's a more fundamental problem. Than the terroir of of whatever city you're, you're living in. <laughs> okay, well, the book is out again. I I really appreciate. It. I have a feeling I'm going to be referencing it a lot moving forward. Uh, what What are you working on now? Uh, any research or another book or anything of that nature? Uh, I'm working on a lot of things. Um, semesters winding down, teaching wise. Um, in the lab, I have a COVID-19 related project um, going on, so that should be interesting. Uh, I have an idea for, for another book, and I have 10,000 or so words written um, about it. This will sound crazy, um, but my idea is that a lot of the a lot of the, the failures of the environmental movement can be, I think, be traced back to some of the ideas of Thoreau and transcendentalists Mm. from the 19th century and sort of this idea, this illusion we have of being totally independent and able to um, make 
make our own way in the world without other people. Um, and I think that 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 mindset of people are bad and necessarily disruptive to nature, and therefore and nature is God, therefore we must protect nature has sort of filtered forward into modern environmentalism and I think modern wellness culture to a degree too, which is how we end up with things like anti-GMO activism and anti-nuclear activism as well, um, which are, I think, harmful to efforts to feed the world and fight mm -hmm. climate change. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. The um, you know the the roots of Thoreau and Emerson are in are in Vedanta and Hindu literature. Uh, Thoreau's father, I believe, was an editor who was translating some of the texts, and that that is, that is very also related to the modern yoga and wellness sphere. Is there? their thought and that rugged individualism and the idea that nature is only benevolent. That's something that persists as well. This idea that if you just drink a lot of green juice and take these supplements and then meditate that you're, you're immune from disease that persists and that's constantly problematic. Yeah. Well, so it, there's also roots in romanticism and the German spring movement in, in Germany. And I, there's a, a very telling passage in one of Thoreau's less read books um, where he comes across a shipwreck and uh, there's a bunch of dead people and you know he kind of looks at it and he's like you know I kind of take the ocean side here um, these people are ruining the landscape <laughs> and I think yeah I see that as kind of like a really anti-humanist view of things and kind of uh, like I don't, I don't like that um, and so carrying that forward, we, we have like a really hard challenge of humans are destroying the environment um, and we're encroaching and we're an invasive species. And so we have to be more balanced between human needs and finding ways of maintaining and protecting the environment and balancing that against um, balancing that balancing those two two things and i think that if we have um environmental movement that's solely focused on um the idea that certain things are unnatural and uh, without a strong definition of what nature is and certain things are natural and natural is good and unnatural is bad and what my company sells is natural then i think that that slows down progress um so those are the kind of ideas I'm, I'm thinking about right now and trying to turn into something coherent. Hello, faithful listeners. I want to thank Derek and Julian for taking the reins this week as I'm away from home, helping to take care of a family member at the end of life. It's not an easy time, but I still want to contribute some I guess you could call it field commentary related to this episode's larger theme of who gets to say what about public health and about the people who work in it. So I'll take a few minutes to describe and pay tribute to what I'm seeing healthcare workers do. And I want to do this to counter what a lot of conspiritualists are saying about them. I don't think any of us knew when we started this podcast that we'd be covering an absurd cruelty during the pandemic, that 
conspirituality would go so far as to cast the healthcare worker in general in a defamatory light. In hindsight, it makes a kind of sense. After all, nurses and doctors work within a highly regulated and difficult to understand process and discourse. They work in a landscape that is homogenized by globalism and validated by institutions. And encountering these workers generally means that something has gone very wrong in our lives. And so their world is a complex space of disruption, which most people don't want to enter, and then they feel helpless when they do. There is no sovereignty in a hospital for anyone. So it's not surprising to watch New Agers find healthcare workers not only threatening, but worse, as if they're walking proof that science and regulation and corporations in the state are all attempting to control our lives and even our deaths. And I suppose it's not surprising to watch COVID denialists take that extra triumphant step and dehumanize healthcare workers as brainwashed or stooges for authoritarianism. We are, after all, living in an age in which institutional abuse is being uncovered in so many sectors. It's hard to trust the way that anything is ordered. Now, as a Canadian, I can't help but think that while many people have had traumatic encounters with conventional medicine, the center of alt-health libertarianism in the world really is the United States. And at this point, anti-science rhetoric has now superseded QAnon as 2020's top U.S. export. Because in the U.S., predatory insurance automatically excludes so many people from regular empathetic engagement with healthcare workers. And it could be that their antipathy for the healthcare system only grows in tandem with their isolation or their exclusion from it. So they live in a world in which the only heroic doctors are those who rebel against being doctors, those who have come to hate their profession and often their colleagues, those who can confirm their suspicion that doctors are cold uncaring, greedy, and even murderous. But of course, a lot of what they're really describing is just capitalism, not science, not doctoring, not caregiving. But because it's inconceivable to challenge capitalism, the rage has to find somewhere to go. Now, I've already said a little bit in previous episodes about how it was three medical experiences that shook me out of my own low-grade wellness environment contempt for contemporary medicine. So two cesarean births in my own family, and then one deep vein thrombosis in my left leg. Not only did I and my family get excellent care, not without bumps in the road, but excellent care, but more importantly, I witnessed excellent care being given all around me. And for some strange psychological reason I can't, can't quite put my finger on, sometimes it's easier for me to appreciate the thing that I'm receiving if I really see how it impacts somebody else. 
So just over the past four days, while this life event has unfolded, I've seen doctors and nurses and personal care workers retain composure and clarity and patience in the midst of a lot of chaos, fear, and grief. I've seen medical transport workers hold space and dignity as they bring the dying home and as they turn the basic manual labor of lifting chairs and stretchers into acts of kindness and even nobility. I've seen them all study their charts with discipline, but also puzzlement and humility. I've seen personal care workers make things that might seem humiliating to a person feel utterly normal. I've seen palliative nurses meticulously measure out pain medication into a little pump that pulses like a tiny little robot heart. And this made me think, praise all the gods that Zach Bush isn't in my life to run some guilt trip on my family for choosing pain medication because he thinks it obstructs the passage to the next dimension or some bullshit like that. It's unbelievable to me to think that that guy is a hospice doctor telling people what their deaths should be or should mean to them. I haven't heard or felt any of that kind of emotional intrusiveness from the healthcare workers who have served me or my family. That stuff seems to be a conspirituality specialty. Now, I have heard a lot of the other stories that surgery has its share of egomaniacs, that nursing is plagued by disordered sleep and sometimes eating, that EMS folks are stressed to the breaking point and can develop trauma disorders and substance issues. But my ongoing and continual impression is that even when these folks are having a bad night, or maybe even a whole year of bad nights called a pandemic, the vast majority pull off the job with grace and empathy. What they do can be clinical, bureaucratic, difficult for lay people like me to understand. And sometimes it seems tone deaf as family members can wind up discussing logistical or insurance plans details with medical personnel over their loved one as they struggle to breathe. But the strange part is that the guiding structure of the whole thing really does seem to afford a kind of humility. So just for a moment, returning to the claim that Charles Eisenstein made uh, in our interview that conventional medicine fancies itself as conquering disease. I'm just not seeing that. What I see in the midst of it is a lot of people going through a lot of pressure-tested rules for thinking clearly about things. I'm seeing an almost frustrating amount of shoulder shrugging, which I think people mistake for ambivalence. They mistake not knowing the answer with not caring about it. But I don't think it is ambivalence. I think it's the honesty of people who know when they're at the limit of their knowledge, who know their lane, and who don't want to promise too much. And as I've noted a number of times on the podcast, I think this is exactly what the charismatic wellness influencer cannot do. In fact, they actually go viral in popularity to the extent that they break all of these scope of practice rules.
But when Charles remarks in our interview that modern medicine is religious in nature, built on beliefs and rituals and a priesthood, I'm kind of agreeing with him more these days, even if I come to very different conclusions. Now, to my understanding, the grounded parts of religion, the stuff that people actually practice every day to feel connected and help their world go around, have always been more about processes and rituals that provide community comfort, and very little about metaphysics or transcendent knowledge. I mean, yeah, it does seem to me that healthcare workers are providing a kind of spiritual service, but it's actually in the form of material daily, hourly care. Now, if you grew up Catholic like I did, you know that very few priests think much at all about doctrine or even God. A huge chunk of them work primarily as community organizers, following rules, following management practices, deferring to a chain of command for good or ill. If you ask them about God about the sacraments, about the subtler points of some uh, epistle or, or, you know, papal bull or something like that, they would shrug. And you would get the impression that they just don't think that much about ultimate questions because they've just got too much fucking work to do. Of course, I'm not saying that the Catholic search for truth or its process is comparable to that of medicine. But I am saying that when it comes to daily practice, I do see that healthcare workers, or at least the ones I've encountered, I see them practicing the same service in calming, treating, and co-regulating that isn't focused on some big story in the sky, but rather in the hard work of making tiny choices using the best information and knowledge available to make life and death a little more welcoming. And so maybe healthcare workers in a secular age represent a kind of perfection in this pastoral care in the sense that their humility with regard to ultimate answers is in good faith. Unlike the Catholic priests I knew, however, they don't turn away from ultimate questions because those questions are for God to answer. They turn away because they have not yet been answered by the shared effort of medicine. So their humility is not based in having been gaslighted by theologians talking about impenetrable mysteries, but rather knowing that knowledge is never complete. I want to finish by saying something about the stress of navigating COVID through all of this stuff, through medical issues and end-of-life considerations. It's awful. I mean, at times it feels intellectually and emotionally unbearable. When it became clear that my my birth family member needed me in the hospital and then at their home, my partner and I had to decide, okay, well that's that's it. I'm I'm gonna be with I'm going I'm not going to be with her or our two boys for Christmas and for 10 days after it's all over because I'll be exposed to the virus. And I'll be exposed by who? I'll be exposed by all of these good healthcare worker people who will be helping with the care through their daily activities. It's 
just an unavoidable irony. So committing to nursing my family member by hand means separating from another part of my family, and this just does not feel right. There's also this terrible part of the, the old phobia about the dying person. The fear around death, the taboo around death is compounded by the virus. So we wind up talking about the dying person as though they're openly, not just archetypally dangerous, even while the person is dying in a more or less natural way. So here's what I think. I think that some anti-maskers and COVID denialists can foresee and feel all of these contingencies and implications. I think that they are fully aware of the absurdity of being afraid or concerned about caring for a dying family member. I imagine they can feel how this goes straight against the apparent natural order of things, how it deprives them of all their coping strategies, whether those strategies come from the primate world of grooming or the religious world of hymns. I think that somewhere they get it. But I also think that in their response, in their denialism, that they too are children unable to accept this as the reality, as given, difficult and mysterious. And because we're not talking about a war or a hurricane, ironically, because we can know so much about this disaster while only being able to be defensive against it, there is time and space for them to say, no, this can't be happening, and then to concoct bizarre rationales for saying so. You know how on the podcast we're always wondering how conspiritualists can believe that the frontline doctors and nurses are lying? I think it's because they deliver the worst and most ambivalent news in the most plausible way. So I'm talking with doctors and nurses and asking questions about COVID exposure as I go through this whole thing. And they're telling me, well, there are no easy answers here, but the best data says that safety increases when you take precautions X, Y, and Z. And because they can't actually force people to take the precautions, the advice feels not like the police state, but as though it's coming from a moral appeal. And it makes me wonder that if the anti-masker can't deal with the cognitive dissonance, they will feel ashamed and they will act out against the very people who are ultimately helping the most. I consider myself a sane person in some ways, but the main way is that I don't expect reality to conform to my wishes. And that means that I have to be open to the hard work of risk calculus, and that never really ends. Part of what I hear Charles Eisenstein saying with a lot of poetry and sensitivity is that that risk calculus is making our lives unbearable. But what I'm seeing through this experience is that no, it's the other way around, that life itself can be unbearable in these ways. And that means that you have to work with it 
and not pretend that some renegade doctor or thinker can relieve me of that responsibility by generating some so-called alternative view that is a majorly immature bypass. So I empathize with the COVID denialists there. I, I said it because in some way, at least they know the score, I think. But they think the way out of it is to change reality, which is why the most sober reality givers, Fauci, nurses, doctors, are so despised. It's not right that they do this. I'm not here for it. So what I wish most through this holiday of long nights is that everyone can witness or receive the care of a good and trained person and feel the blessing of some of the most complex and hard-won care in the world, in this long history of caring for bodies, meal by meal, cold washcloth by cold washcloth, pain meds lovingly offered, and the shimmering needle dripping with the vaccine. And behind these objects of care, which are sometimes fearful and which sometimes produce mistakes, that we're all able to see that beneath the rubber gloves and behind the face shields and masks, we can see and appreciate also bloody well pay for the generations of teamwork, the peer-reviewed kindness, and this love given in very human form. <laughs> 